What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 23 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 23 1. When America entered the Great European War, Vida sent Ramy off to an officer's training camp, less than a year after her wedding. Ramy was diligent and rather strong. He came out a first lieutenant of infantry and was one of the earliest sent abroad. Carol grew definitely afraid of Vida as Vida transferred the passion which had been released in marriage to the cause of the war, as she lost all tolerance. When Carol was touched by the desire for heroism in Ramy and tried tactfully to express it, Vida made her feel like an impertinent child. By enlistment and draft, the sons of Lyman Cass, Nat Hicks, Sam Clark joined the army. But most of the soldiers were the sons of German and Swedish farmers unknown to Carol. Dr. Terry Gould and Dr. McGannum became captains in the medical corps, and were stationed at camps in Iowa and Georgia. They were the only officers, besides Ramey, from the Gopher Prairie district. Kennicott wanted to go with them but the several doctors of the town forgot medical rivalry and, meeting in council, decided that he would do better to wait and keep the town well till he should be needed. Kennicott was forty-two now, the only youngish doctor left in a radius of eighteen miles. Old Dr. Westlake, who loved comfort like a cat, protestingly rolled out at night for country calls, and hunted through his collar-box for his G.A.R. button. Carol did not quite know what she thought about Kennicott's going. Certainly she was no Spartan wife. She knew that he wanted to go. She knew that this longing was always in him, behind his unchanged trudging and remarks about the weather. She felt for him an admiring affection, and she was sorry that she had nothing more than affection. Cy Bogart was the spectacular warrior of the town. Cy was no longer the weedy boy who had sat in the loft speculating about Carol's egotism and the mysteries of generation. He was nineteen now, tall, broad, busy, the town sport, famous for his ability to drink beer, to shake dice, to tell undesirable stories, and from his post in front of Dyer's drug store, to embarrass the girls by jollying them as they passed. His face was at once peach-bloomed and pimply. Cy was to be heard publishing it abroad that, if he couldn't get the widow Bogart's permission to enlist, he'd run away and enlist without it. He shouted that he hated every dirty Hun. By gosh, 
if he could just poke a bayonet into one big fat hiney and learn him some decency and democracy, he'd die happy. Sy got much reputation by whipping a farm-boy named Adolf Pockbauer, for being a damned hyphenated German. This was the younger Pockbauer, who was killed in the Argonne, while he was trying to bring the body of his Yankee captain back to the lines. At this time Sy Bogart was still dwelling in Gopher Prairie and planning to go to war. 2. Everywhere Carol heard that the war was going to bring a basic change in psychology, to purify and uplift everything from marital relations to national politics, and she tried to exult in it. Only she did not find it. She saw the women who made bandages for the Red Cross giving up bridge and laughing at having to do without sugar, but over the surgical dressings they did not speak of God and the souls of men, but of Miles Bjornstam's impudence, of Terry Gould's scandalous carryings-on with a farmer's daughter four years ago, of cooking cabbage and of altering blouses. Their references to the war touched atrocities only. She herself was punctual and efficient at making dressings, but she could not, like Mrs. Lemon Cass and Mrs. Bogart, fill the dressings with hate for enemies. When she protested to Vida, the young do the work while these old ones sit around and interrupt us and gag with hate because they're too feeble to do anything but hate. Then Vida turned on her. If you can't be reverent, at least don't be so pert and opinionated, now when men and women are dying. Some of us, we have given up so much and we're glad to. At least we expect that you others shan't try to be witty at our expense." There was weeping. Carol did desire to see the Prussian autocracy defeated. She did persuade herself that there were no autocracies save that of Prussia. She did thrill to motion pictures of troops embarking in New York, and she was uncomfortable when she met Miles Bjornstam on the street and he croaked, "'How's tricks? Things going fine with me. Got two new cows. Well, have you become a patriot, eh? Sure, they'll bring democracy, the democracy of death. Yes, sure, in every war since the Garden of Eden the workmen have gone out to fight each other for perfectly good reasons, handed to them by their bosses. Now me, I'm wise. I'm so wise that I know I don't know anything about the war." It was not a thought of the war that remained with her after Miles's declamation, but a perception that she and Vida and all of the good-intentioners who wanted to do something for the common people were insignificant because the common people were able to do things for themselves, and highly likely to, as soon as they learned the fact. The conception of millions of workmen like Miles taking control frightened her, and she scuttled rapidly away from the thought of a time when she might no longer retain the position of Lady Bountiful to the Bjornstums and Bees and Oscarinas whom she loved and patronized. 3. It was June two months after America's entrance into the war, that the momentous event happened, the visit of the great Percy Bresnahan, the millionaire president of the Velvet Motor Car Company of Boston, the one native son who was always to be mentioned to strangers. For two weeks there were rumors. Sam Clark cried to Kennicott, "'Say, I hear Perce Bresnahan is coming. By golly, it'll be great to see the old scout, eh?' Finally the Dauntless printed, on the front page with a number one head, a letter from Bresnahan to Jackson Elder. Dear Jack, well, Jack, 
I find I can make it. I'm going to go to Washington as a dollar-a-year man for the government, in the aviation motor section, and tell them how much I don't know about carburetors. But before I start in being a hero, I want to shoot out and catch me a big black bass and cuss out you and Sam Clark and Harry Haydock and Will Kennicott and the rest of you pirates. I'll land in G.P. on June 7, on number 7 from Minneapolis. Shake a day, day. Tell Bert Tybee to save me a glass of beer. Sincerely yours, Purse. All members of the social, financial, scientific, literary, and sporting sets were at number seven to meet Bresnahan. Mrs. Lyman Cass was beside Del Snafflin, the barber, and Juanita Haydock almost cordial to Miss Villets, the librarian. Carol saw Bresnahan laughing down at them from the train vestibule, big, immaculate, overjawed, with the eye of an executive. In the voice of the professional good fellow he bellowed, "'Howdy, folks!' As she was introduced to him, not he to her, Bresnahan looked into her eyes, and his handshake was warm, unhurried. He declined the offers of motors. He walked off, his arm about the shoulder of Nat Hicks, the sporting tailor, with the elegant Harry Haydock carrying one of his enormous pale leather bags, Del Snafflin the other, Jack Elder bearing an overcoat, and Julius Flickerbaugh the fishing tackle. Carol noted that though Bresnahan wore spats and a stick, no small boy jeered. She decided, I must have Will get a double-breasted blue coat and a wing collar and a dotted bow-tie like his. That evening, when Kennicott was trimming the grass along the walk with sheep-shears, Bresnahan rolled up alone. He was now in corduroy trousers, khaki shirt open at the throat, a white boating hat and marvelous canvas and leather shoes. On the job there, old Will! Say, my lord, this is living! To come back and get into a regular man-sized pair of pants? They can talk all they want to about the city, but my idea of a good time is to loaf around and see you boys and catch a gamey bass." He hustled up the walk and blared at Carol. "'Where's that little fellow? I hear you've got one fine big he-boy that you're holding out on me.' "'He's gone to bed. Rather briefly.' "'I know. And rules are rules these days. Kids get routed through the shop like a motor. But look here, sister, I'm one great hand at busting rules. Come on now, let Uncle Purse have a look at him. Please now, sister." He put his arm about her waist. It was a large, strong, sophisticated arm, and very agreeable. He grinned at her with a devastating knowingness, while Kennicott glowed inanely. She flushed. She was alarmed by the ease with which the big city man invaded her guarded personality. She was glad, in retreat, to scamper ahead of the two men upstairs to the hall-room in which Hugh slept. All the way Kennicott muttered, "'Well, well, say, gee Whittakers, but it's good to have you back. Certainly is good to see you.' Hugh lay on his stomach, making an earnest business of sleeping. He burrowed his eyes in the dwarf-blue pillow to escape the electric light then sat up abruptly, small and frail in his woolly night-drawers, his floss of brown hair wild, the pillow clutched to his breast. He wailed. He stared at the stranger, in a manner of patient dismissal. He explained confidentially to Carol, "'Daddy wouldn't let it be morning yet. What does the pillow say?' Bresnahan dropped his arm caressingly on Carol's shoulder. He pronounced, my lord, you're a lucky girl to have a fine young husk like that. 
I figure Will knew what he was doing when he persuaded you to take a chance on an old bum like him. They tell me you come from St. Paul. We're going to get you to come to Boston some day." He leaned over the bed. "'Young man, you're the slickest sight I've seen this side of Boston. With your permission, may we present you with a slight token of our regard and appreciation of your long service?' He held out a red-rubber Pierrot. Hugh remarked, "'Gimme it,' hid it under the bedclothes, and stared at Bresnahan as though he had never seen the man before. For once Carol permitted herself the spiritual luxury of not asking, "'Why, Hugh, dear, what do you say when someone gives you a present?' The great man was apparently waiting. They stood in inane suspense till Bresnahan led them out, rumbling, "'How about planning a fishing trip, Will?' He remained for half an hour. Always he told Carol what a charming person she was. Always he looked at her knowingly. Yes, he probably would make a woman fall in love with him, but it wouldn't last a week. I'd get tired of his confounded buoyancy, his hypocrisy. He's a spiritual bully. He makes me rude to him in self-defense. Oh, yes, he is glad to be here. He does like us. He's so good an actor that he convinces his own self. I'd hate him in Boston. He'd have all the obvious big city things—limousines, discreet evening clothes, order a clever dinner at a smart restaurant, drawing-room decorated by the best firm, but the pictures giving him away. I'd rather talk to Guy Pollock in his dusty office. How I lie! His arm coaxed my shoulder and his eyes dared me not to admire him. I'd be afraid of him. I hate him. Oh, the inconceivable egotistic imagination of women! All this stew of analysis about a man, a good, decent, friendly, efficient man, because he was kind to me as Will's wife. 4. The Kennicotts, the Elders, the Clarks, and Bresnahan went fishing at Red Squaw Lake. They drove forty miles to the lake in Elders' new Cadillac. There was much laughter and bustle at the start, much storing of lunch-baskets and jointed poles, much inquiry as to whether it would really bother Carol to sit with her feet up on a roll of shawls. When they were ready to go, Mrs. Clark lamented, "'Oh, Sam, I forgot my magazine!' and Bresnahan bullied, "'Come on, now, if you women think you're going to be literary, you can't go with us tough guys!' Everyone laughed a great deal, and as they drove on, Mrs. Clark explained that, though probably she would not have read it, still she might have wanted to, while the other girls had a nap in the afternoon, and she was right in the middle of a serial. It was an awfully exciting story. It seems that this girl was a Turkish dancer, only she was really the daughter of an American lady and a Russian prince, and men kept running after her just disgustingly, but she remained pure, and there was a scene. While the men floated on the lake, Casting for black bass, the women prepared lunch and yawned. Carol was a little resentful of the manner in which the men assumed that they did not care to fish. I don't want to go with them, but I would like the privilege of refusing. The lunch was long and pleasant. It was a background for the talk of the great man come home, hints of cities and large imperative affairs and famous people, jocosely modest admissions that, Yes, their friend Purse was doing about as well as most of these 
Boston swells that think so much of themselves because they come from rich old families and went to college and everything. Believe me, it's us new businessmen that are running Beantown today, and not a lot of fussy old bucks snoozing in their clubs." Carol realized that he was not one of the sons of Gopher Prairie, who, if they do not actually starve in the East, are invariably spoken of as highly successful and she found behind his too incessant flattery a genuine affection for his mates. It was in the matter of the war that he most favored and thrilled them. Dropping his voice while they bent nearer—there was no one within two miles to overhear—he disclosed the fact that, in both Boston and Washington, he'd be getting a lot of inside stuff on the war, right straight from headquarters. He was in touch with some men—couldn't name them, but they were darn high up in both the war and state departments and he would say, only for Pete's sake, they mustn't breathe one word of this. It was strictly on the QT, and not generally known outside of Washington. But just between ourselves, and they could take this for gospel, Spain had finally decided to join the Entente Allies in the Grand Scrap. Yes, sir, there'd be two million fully equipped Spanish soldiers fighting with us in France in one month now. Some surprise for Germany, all right. How about the prospects for revolution in Germany?" reverently asked Kennicott. The authority grunted. Nothing to it. The one thing you can bet on is that no matter what happens to the German people, win or lose, they'll stick by the Kaiser till hell freezes over. I got that absolutely straight, from a fellow who's on the inside of the inside in Washington. No, sir, I don't pretend to know much about international affairs, but one thing you can put down as settled is that Germany will be a Hohenzollern empire for the next forty years. At that, I don't know as it's so bad. The Kaiser and the Junkers keep a firm hand on a lot of these red agitators who'd be worse than a king if they could get control." "'I'm terribly interested in this uprising that overthrew the Tsar in Russia,' suggested Carol. She had finally been conquered by the man's wizard knowledge of affairs. Kennicott apologized for her. Carrie's nuts about this Russian Revolution. Is there much to it, Purse?" "'There is not,' Bresnahan said flatly. "'I can speak by the book there. Carol, honey, I'm surprised to find you talking like a New York Russian Jew or one of these long hairs. I can tell you, only you don't need to let everyone in on it, this is confidential. I got it from a man who's close to the State Department. But, as a matter of fact, the Tsar will be back in power before the end of the year. You read a lot about his retiring about his being killed, but I know he's got a big army back of him, and he'll show these damn agitators—lazy beggars hunting for a soft berth bossing the poor goats that fall for him—he'll show them where they get off." Carol was sorry to hear that the Tsar was coming back, but she said nothing. The others had looked vacant at the mention of a country so far away as Russia. Now they edged in and asked Bresnahan what he thought about the Packard car, investments in Texas oil wells, the comparative merits of young men born in Minnesota and in Massachusetts, the question of prohibition, the future cost of motor tires, and wasn't it true that the American aviators put it all over these Frenchmen? They were glad to find that he agreed with them on every point. As she heard Bresnahan announce, we're perfectly willing to talk to any committee the men may choose, but we're not going to stand for some outside agitator butting in and telling us how we're going to run our plant." Carol remembered that Jackson Elder, now meekly receiving new ideas, 
had said the same thing in the same words. While Sam Clark was digging up from his memory a long and immensely detailed story of the crushing things he had said to a Pullman porter named George, Bresnahan hugged his knees and rocked and watched Carol. She wondered if he did not understand the laboriousness of the smile with which he listened to Kennicott's account of the good one he had on Carrie, that marital, coyly improper, ten times told tale of how she had forgotten to attend to Hugh because she was all head up pounding the box, which may be translated as eagerly playing the piano. She was certain that Bresnahan saw through her when she pretended not to hear Kennicott's invitation to join a game of cribbage. She feared the comments he might make. She was irritated by her fear. She was equally irritated when the motor returned through Gopher Prairie to find that she was proud of sharing in Bresnahan's kudos as people waved, and Juanita Haydock leaned from a window. She said to herself, as though I cared whether I'm seen with this fat phonograph, and simultaneously, everybody has noticed how much Will and I are playing with Mr. Bresnahan. The town was full of his stories, his friendliness, his memory for names, his clothes, his trout-flies, his generosity. He had given a hundred dollars to Father Klubach the priest, and a hundred to the Reverend Mr. Zitterell, the Baptist minister, for Americanization work. At the Bon Ton, Carol heard Nat Hicks the tailor exulting, "'Old Purse certainly pulled a good one on this fellow Bjornstam that always is shooting off his mouth. He's supposed to have settled down since he got married. But, Lord, those fellows that think they know it all, they never change. Well, the Red Swede got the grand rass handed to him all right. He had the nerve to breeze up to Purse, at Dave Dyer's, and he said, he said to Purse, I've always wanted to look at a man that was so useful that folks would pay him a million dollars for existing. And Purse gave him the once-over and came right back. Have, eh? he says. Well, he says. I've been looking for a man so useful sweeping floors that I could pay him four dollars a day. Want the job, my friend? Ha, ha, ha! Say, you know how lippy Bjornstam is. Well, for once, he didn't have a thing to say. He tried to get fresh and tell what a rotten town this is, and Pierce came right back at him. If you don't like this country, you better get out of it and go back to Germany, where you belong. Say, maybe us fellows didn't give Bjornstam the horse laugh, though. Oh, Purse is the white-haired boy in this burg already. 5. Bresnahan had borrowed Jackson Elder's motor. He stopped at the Kennicott's. He bawled at Carol, rocking with Hugh on the porch. Better come for a ride. She wanted to snub him. Thanks so much, but I'm being maternal. Bring him along, bring him along. Bresnahan was out of the seat, stalking up the sidewalk, and the rest of her protests and dignities were feeble. She did not bring Hugh along. Bresnahan was silent for a mile, in words, but he looked at her as though he meant her to know that he understood everything she thought. She observed how deep was his chest. "'Lovely fields over there,' he said. "'You really like them? There's no profit in them.' He chuckled. "Sister." You can't get away with it. I'm on to you. You consider me a big bluff. Well, maybe I am. But so are you, my dear, and pretty enough so that I'd try to make love to you if I weren't afraid you'd slap me. Mr. Bresnahan, do you talk that way to your wife's friends, and do you call them sister? As a matter of fact, I do, 
and I make em like it. Score two. But his chuckle was not so rotund, and he was very attentive to the ammeter. In a moment he was cautiously attacking. That's a wonderful boy, Will Kennicott. Great work these country practitioners are doing. The other day, in Washington, I was talking to a big scientific shark, a professor in Johns Hopkins Medical School, and he was saying that no one has ever sufficiently appreciated the general practitioner and the sympathy and help he gives folks. These crack specialists, the young scientific fellows, they're so cocksure and so wrapped up in their laboratories that they miss the human element. Except in the case of a few freak diseases that no respectable human being would waste his time having, it's the old doc that keeps a community well, mind and body. And it strikes me that Will is one of the steadiest and clearest-headed counter-practitioners I've ever met, eh?" I'm sure he is. He's a servant of reality. Come again? Um, yes. All of that, whatever that is. Say, child, you don't care a whole lot for Gopher Prairie, if I'm not mistaken. Nope. There's where you're missing a big chance. There's nothing to these cities. Believe me, I know. This is a good town as they go. You're lucky to be here. I wish I could shy on." Very well. Why don't you? Huh? Why, Lord, can't get away from— You don't have to stay. I do. So I want to change it. Do you know that men like you, prominent men, do quite a reasonable amount of harm by insisting that your native towns and native states are perfect? It's you who encourage the denizens not to change. They quote you and go on believing that they live in paradise, and—she clenched her fist—the incredible dullness of it. Suppose you were right. Even so, don't you think you waste a lot of thundering on one poor scared little town? Kind of mean. I tell you it's dull. Dull! The folks don't find it dull. These couples like the Haydocks have a high old time. Dances and cards. They don't. They're bored. Almost everyone here is. Vacuousness and bad manners and spiteful gossip, that's what I hate. Those things, course they're here. So are they in Boston, and every place else. Why, the faults you find in this town are simply human nature, and never will be changed. Perhaps. But in a Boston all the good carols, I'll admit I have no faults, can find one another and play. But here... I'm alone, in a stale pool, except as it's stirred by the great Mr. Bresnahan. My lord, to hear you tell it, a fellow think that all the denizens, as you impolitely call them, are so confoundedly unhappy that it's a wonder they don't all up and commit suicide. But they seem to struggle along somehow. They don't know what they miss. And anybody can endure anything. Look at men in mines and in prisons. He drew up on the south shore of Lake Minimashie. He glanced across the reeds reflected on the water, the quiver of wavelets like crumpled tinfoil, the distant shores patched with dark woods, silvery oats and deep yellow wheat. He patted her hand. Sis, Carol, you're a darling girl, but you're difficult. Know what I think? Yes. Humph. Maybe you do, but my humble, not too humble, opinion is that you like to be different. You like to think you're peculiar. Why, if you knew how many tens of thousands of women, especially in New York, say just what you do, 
You'd lose all the fun of thinking you're a lone genius and you'd be on the bandwagon whooping it up for Gopher Prairie and a good decent family life. There's always about a million young women just out of college who want to teach their grandmothers how to suck eggs." "'How proud you are of that homely rustic metaphor! You use it at banquets and directors' meetings and boast of your climb from a humble homestead.' "'Huh! You may have my number. I'm not telling. But look here. You're so prejudiced against Gopher Prairie that you overshoot the mark. You antagonize those who might be inclined to agree with you in some particulars, but, great guns, the town can't be all wrong. No, it isn't. But it could be. Let me tell you a fable. Imagine a cave woman complaining to her mate. She doesn't like one single thing. She hates the damp cave, the rats running over her bare legs, the stiff skin garments, the eating half-raw meat, her husband's bushy face, the constant battles, and the worship of the spirits who'll hoodoo her unless she gives the priests her best claw necklace. Her man protests, but it can't all be wrong, and he thinks he has reduced her to absurdity. Now you assume that a world which produces a Percy Bresnahan and a Velvet Motor Company must be civilized. It is? Aren't we only about halfway along in barbarism? I suggest Mrs. Bogart as a test and we'll continue in barbarism just as long as people as nearly intelligent as you continue to defend things as they are because they are. You're a fair speeder, child. But, by golly, I'd like to see you try to design a new manifold, or run a factory and keep a lot of your fellow Reds from Czech, Slovensky, Magyar, God knows where ya on the job. You drop your theory so darn quick. I'm not any defender of things as they are. Sure. They're rotten. Only I'm sensible." He preached his gospel. Love of outdoors, playing the game, loyalty to friends. She had the neophyte shock of discovery that, outside of tracts, conservatives do not tremble and find no answer when an iconoclast turns on them, but retort with agility and confusing statistics. He was so much the man, the worker, the friend, that she liked him when she most tried to stand out against him. He was so much the successful executive that she did not want him to despise her. His manner of sneering at what he called parlor socialists, though the phrase was not overwhelmingly new, had a power which made her wish to placate his company of well-fed, speed-loving administrators. When he demanded, Would you like to associate with nothing but a lot of turkey-necked, horn-spectacled nuts that have adenoids and need a haircut? and that spend all their time kicking about conditions and never do a lick of work?" She said, No, but just the same. When he asserted, Even if your cave woman was right in knocking the whole works, I bet some red-blooded regular fellow, some real he-man, found her a nice dry cave, and not any whining, criticizing radical. She wriggled her head feebly between a nod and a shake. His large hands, sensual lips, easy voice supported his self-confidence. He made her feel young and soft, as Kennicott had once made her feel. She had nothing to say when he bent his powerful head and experimented, "'My dear, I'm sorry I'm going away from this town. You'd be a darling child to play with. You are pretty. Some day in Boston I'll show you how we buy lunch.' "'Well, hang it, got to be starting back.' The only answer to his gospel of beef which she could find 
when she was home, was a wail of, but just the same. She did not see him again before he departed for Washington. His eyes remained. His glances at her lips and hair and shoulders had revealed to her that she was not a wife and mother alone, but a girl, that there still were men in the world, as there had been in college days. That admiration led her to study Kennicott, to tear at the shroud of intimacy, to perceive the strangeness of the most familiar. End of chapter 23《Chapter Twenty Four of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four One All that midsummer month, Carol was sensitive to Kennicott. She recalled a hundred grotesqueries her comic dismay at his having chewed tobacco, the evening when she had tried to read poetry to him, matters which had seemed to vanish with no trace or sequence. Always she repeated that he had been heroically patient in his desire to join the army. She made much of her consoling affection for him in little things. She liked the homeliness of his tinkering about the house, his strength and handiness as he tightened the hinges of a shutter, his boyishness when he ran to her to be comforted because he had found rust in the barrel of his pump-gun. But at the highest he was to her another Hugh, without the glamour of Hugh's unknown future. There was late in June a day of heat-lightning. Because of the work imposed by the absence of the other doctors, the Kennicotts had not moved to the lake cottage but remained in town, dusty and irritable. In the afternoon, when she went to Olison and McGuire's, formerly dull in Olison's, Carol was vexed by the assumption of the youthful clerk, recently come from the farm, that he had to be neighborly and rude. He was no more brusquely familiar than a dozen other clerks of the town, but her nerves were heat-scorched. When she asked for codfish for supper, he grunted, "'What do you want that darned old dry stuff for?' "'I like it. Punk! Guess the doc can afford something better than that. Try some of the new weenies we got in. Swell! The Haydocks use them.' She exploded. "'My dear young man, it is not your duty to instruct me in housekeeping, and it doesn't particularly concern me what the Haydocks condescend to approve.' He was hurt. He hastily wrapped up the leprous fragment of fish. He gaped as she trailed out. She lamented. I shouldn't have spoken so. He didn't mean anything. He doesn't know when he is being rude. Her repentance was not proof against Uncle Whittier when she stopped in at his grocery for salt and a package of safety matches. Uncle Whittier, in a shirt collarless and soaked with sweat in a brown streak down his back, was whining at a clerk. Come on now, get a hustle on and lug that pound of cake up to Miss Cass's. Some folks in this town think a storekeeper ain't got nothing to do but chase out phone orders. Hello, Carrie. That dress you got on looks kind of low in the neck to me. May be decent and modest. I suppose I'm old-fashioned. But I never thought much of showing the whole town a woman's bust. He he he. Afternoon, Mrs. Hicks. Sage. Just out of it. Let me sell you some other spices. Hey? Uncle Whittier was nasally indignant. Certainly. Got plenty other spices, just good as sage for any purpose whatever. What's the matter with... Well, with all spice. When Mrs. Hicks was gone, he raged, 
Some folks don't know what they want. Sweating sanctimonious bully, my husband's uncle, thought Carol. She crept into Dave Dyer's. Dave held up his arms with, Don't shoot! I surrender! She smiled, but it occurred to her that for nearly five years Dave had kept up this game of pretending that she threatened his life. As she went dragging through the prickly hot street, she reflected that a citizen of Gopher Prairie does not have jests, he has a jest. Every cold morning for five winters Lyman Cass had remarked, "'Fair to Midland chilly. Get worse before it gets better.' Fifty times had Ezra Stowbody informed the public that Carol had once asked, "'Shall I endorse this check on the back?' Fifty times had Sam Clark called to her, "'Where'd you steal that hat?' Fifty times had the mention of Barney Cahoon, the town drayman, like a nickel in a slot produced from Kennicott, the apocryphal story of Barney's directing a minister, "'Come down to the depot and get your case of religious books. They're leaking!' She came home by the unvarying route. She knew every house-front, every street-crossing, every billboard, every tree, every dog. She knew every blackened banana-skin and empty cigarette-box in the gutters. She knew every greeting. When John Howland stopped and gaped at her there was no possibility that he was about to confide anything but his grudging, "'Well, how are you today?' All her future life, this same red-labeled bread-crate in front of the bakery, this same thimble-shaped crack in the sidewalk a quarter of a block beyond Stowbody's granite hitching-post. She silently handed her purchases to the silent Oscarina. She sat on the porch, rocking, fanning, twitchy with Hugh's whining. Kennicott came home, grumbled, "'What the devil is the kid yapping about?' "'I guess you can stand it ten minutes if I can stand it all day.' He came to supper in his shirt-sleeves, his vest partly open, revealing discolored suspenders. "'Why don't you put on your nice Palm Beach suit and take off that hideous vest?' she complained. "'Too much trouble. Too hot to go upstairs.' She realized that for perhaps a year she had not definitely looked at her husband. She regarded his table manners. He violently chased fragments of fish about his plate with a knife and licked the knife after gobbling them. She was slightly sick. She asserted, "'I'm ridiculous. What do these things matter? Don't be so simple!' But she knew that to her they did matter, the solecisms and mixed tenses of the table. She realized that they found little to say that incredibly they were like the talked-out couples whom she had pitied at restaurants. Bresnahan would have spouted in a lively, exciting, unreliable manner. She realized that Kennicott's clothes were seldom pressed. His coat was wrinkled. His trousers would flap at the knees when he arose. His shoes were unblacked, and they were of an elderly shapelessness. He refused to wear soft hats, cleaved to a hard derby, as a symbol of virility and prosperity and sometimes he forgot to take it off in the house. She peeped at his cuffs. They were frayed in prickles of starched linen. She had turned them once, she clipped them every week, but when she had begged him to throw the shirt away, last Sunday morning at the crisis of the weekly bath, he had uneasily protested, "'Oh, it'll wear quite a while yet.' He was shaved, by himself or more socially by Del Snafflin, only three times a week. This morning had not been one of the three times. Yet he was vain in his new turn-down collars and sleek ties. He often spoke of the sloppy dressing of Dr. McGannum, and he laughed at old men who wore detachable cuffs or gladstone collars. 
Carol did not care much for the creamed codfish that evening. She noted that his nails were jagged and ill-shaped from his habit of cutting them with a pocket-knife, and despising a nail-file as effeminate and urban. That they were invariably clean, that his were the scoured fingers of the surgeon, made his stubborn untidiness the more jarring. They were wise hands, kind hands, but they were not the hands of love. She remembered him in the days of courtship. He had tried to please her then, had touched her by sheepishly wearing a colored band on his straw hat. Was it possible that those days of fumbling for each other were gone so completely? He had read books to impress her, had said, she recalled it ironically, that she was to point out his every fault, had insisted once, as they sat in the secret place beneath the walls of Fort Snelling. She shut the door on her thoughts. That was sacred ground. But it was a shame that— She nervously pushed away her cake and stewed apricots. After supper, when they had been driven in from the porch by mosquitoes, when Kennicott had for the two-hundredth time in five years commented, "'We must have a new screen on the porch. Let's all the bugs in.' They sat reading, and she noted, and detested herself for noting, and noted again his habitual awkwardness. He slumped down in one chair, his legs up on another, and he explored the recesses of his left ear with the end of his little finger. She could hear the faint smack. He kept it up. He kept it up. He blurted, "'Oh, forgot to tell you. Some of the fellows coming in to play poker this evening. Suppose we could have some crackers and cheese and beer?' She nodded. He might have mentioned it before. Oh, well, it's his house. The poker party straggled in. Sam Clark, Jack Elder, Dave Dyer, Jim Howland. To her they mechanically said, "'Devenin'," but to Kennicott, in a heroic male manner, "'Well, well, shall we start playing? Got a hunch I'm gonna lick somebody real bad.' No one suggested that she join them. She told herself that it was her own fault, because she was not more friendly, but she remembered that they never asked Mrs. Sam Clark to play. Bresnahan would have asked her. She sat in the living room, glancing across the hall at the men as they humped over the dining table. They were in shirt sleeves, smoking, chewing, spitting incessantly, lowering their voices for a moment so that she did not hear what they said, and afterward giggled hoarsely, using over and over the canonical phrases, three to dole, I raise you a finif. Come on now, ante up. What do you think this is, a pink tea? The cigar smoke was acrid and pervasive. The firmness with which the men mouthed their cigars made the lower part of their faces expressionless, heavy, unappealing. They were like politicians cynically dividing appointments. How could they understand her world? Did that faint and delicate world exist? Was she a fool? She doubted her world, doubted herself, and was sick in the acid, smoke-stained air. She slipped back into brooding upon the habituality of the house. Kennicott was as fixed in routine as an isolated old man. At first he had amorously deceived himself into liking her experiments with food, the one medium in which she could express imagination, but now he wanted only his round of favorite dishes—steak, roast beef, boiled pig's feet, oatmeal, baked apples. Because at some more flexible period he had advanced from oranges to grapefruit he considered himself an epicure. During their first autumn she had smiled over his affection for his hunting coat, 
but now that the leather had come unstitched in dribbles of pale yellow thread and tatters of canvas, smeared with dirt of the fields and grease from gun-cleaning, hung in a border of rags, she hated the thing. Wasn't her whole life like that hunting-coat? She knew every nick and brown spot on each piece of the set of china purchased by Kennicott's mother in 1895, discreet china with a pattern of washed-out forget-me-nots, rimmed with blurred gold, the gravy-boat in a saucer which did not match, the solemn and evangelical-covered vegetable dishes, the two platters. Twenty times had Kennicott sighed over the fact that B had broken the other platter, the medium-sized one. The kitchen. Damp black iron sink, damp whitey yellow drain board with shreds of discolored wood which from long scrubbing were as soft as cotton thread, warped table, alarm clock, stove bravely blackened by Oscarina, but an abomination in its loose doors and broken draughts, an oven that never would keep an even heat. Carol had done her best by the kitchen, painted it white, put up curtains replaced a six-year-old calendar by a color print. She had hoped for tiling and a kerosene range for summer cooking, but Kennicott always postponed these expenses. She was better acquainted with the utensils in the kitchen than with Vida Sherwin or Guy Pollock. The can-opener, whose soft gray metal handle was twisted from some ancient effort to pry open a window, was more pertinent to her than all the cathedrals in Europe and more significant than the future of Asia was the never-settled weekly question as to whether the small kitchen-knife with the unpainted handle or the second-best buckhorn carving-knife was better for cutting up cold chicken for Sunday supper. 2. She was ignored by the males till midnight. Her husband called, "'Suppose we could have some more eats, Carrie?' As she passed through the dining-room the men smiled on her, belly smiles. None of them noticed her while she was serving the crackers and cheese and sardines and beer. They were determining the exact psychology of Dave Dyer in standing pat two hours before. When they were gone, she said to Kennicott, "'Your friends have the manners of a barroom. They expect me to wait on them like a servant. They're not so much interested in me as they would be in a waiter, because they don't have to tip me. Unfortunately. Well, good night.' So rarely did she nag in this petty, hot-weather fashion that he was astonished rather than angry. "'Hey, wait! What's the idea? I must say I don't get you. The boys? Barroom? Why, Purse Bresnahan was saying there isn't a finer bunch of royal good fellows anywhere than just the crowd that were here tonight.' They stood in the lower hall. He was too shocked to go on with his duties of locking the front door and winding his watch and the clock. Bresnahan. I'm sick of him." She meant nothing in particular. "'Why, Carrie, he's one of the biggest men in the country. Boston just eats out of his hand.' "'I wonder if it does. How do we know but that in Boston, among well-bred people, he may be regarded as an absolute lout? The way he calls women sister, and the way—' "'Now look here. That'll do. Of course I know you don't mean it. You're simply hot and tired.' and trying to work off your peeve on me. But just the same, I won't stand your jumping on purse. You—it's just like your attitude toward the war, so darn afraid that America will become militaristic. But you are the pure patriot. By God I am!" Yes, 
and I heard you talking to Sam Clark tonight about ways of avoiding the income tax." He had recovered enough to lock the door. He clumped upstairs ahead of her, growling, "'You don't know what you're talking about. I'm perfectly willing to pay my full tax. Fact, I'm in favor of the income tax. Even though I do think it's a penalty on frugality and enterprise, fact it's an unjust, darn fool tax. But just the same, I'll pay it. Only, I'm not idiot enough to pay more than the government makes me pay, and Sam and I were just figuring out whether all automobile expenses oughtn't to be exemptions. I'll take a lot off you, Carrie, but I don't propose for one second to stand your saying I'm not patriotic. You know mighty well and good that I've tried to get away and join the army. And at the beginning of the whole fracas I said, I've said right along, that we ought to have entered the war the minute Germany invaded Belgium. You don't get me at all. You can't appreciate a man's work. You're abnormal. You fussed so much with these fool novels and books and all this highbrow junk. You love to argue." It ended, a quarter of an hour later, in his calling her a neurotic, before he turned away and pretended to sleep. For the first time they had failed to make peace. There are two races of people, only two, and they live side by side. He calls mine neurotic, mine calls his stupid. We'll never understand each other, never. And it's madness for us to debate, to lie together in a hot bed in a creepy room, enemies yoked. 3. It clarified in her the longing for a place of her own. While it's so hot, I think I'll sleep in the spare room," she said next day. Not a bad idea. He was cheerful and kindly. The room was filled with a lumbering double bed and a cheap pine bureau. She stored the bed in the attic, replaced it by a cot which, with a denim cover, made a couch by day, put in a dressing-table, a rocker transformed by a cretonne cover, had Miles Bjornstam build bookshelves. Kennicott slowly understood that she meant to keep up her seclusion. In his queries, changing the whole room? Putting your books in there? She caught his dismay. But it was so easy, once her door was closed, to shut out his worry. That hurt her, the ease of forgetting him. Aunt Bessie Smale sleuthed out this anarchy. She yammered, Why, Carrie, you ain't going to sleep all alone by yourself. I don't believe in that. Married folks should have the same room, of course. Don't go getting silly notions. No telling what a thing like that might lead to. Suppose I up and told your Uncle Wit that I wanted a room of my own." Carol spoke of recipes for corn pudding. But from Mrs. Dr. Westlake she drew encouragement. She had made an afternoon call on Mrs. Westlake. She was, for the first time, invited upstairs and found the suave old woman sewing in a white and mahogany room with a small bed. "'Oh, do you have your own royal apartments, and the doctor his?' Carol hinted. "'Indeed I do. The doctor says it's bad enough to have to stand my temper at meals. Do—' Mrs. Westlake looked at her sharply. "'Why, don't you do the same thing?' "'I've been thinking about it,' Carol laughed in an embarrassed way. Then you wouldn't regard me as a complete hussy if I wanted to be by myself now and then? Why, child, every woman ought to get off by herself and turn over her thoughts, about children and God and how bad her complexion is, 
and the way men don't really understand her, and how much work she finds to do in the house, and how much patience it takes to endure some things in a man's love." "'Yes,' Carol said it in a gasp, her hands twisted together. She wanted to confess not only her hatred for the Aunt Bessies, but her covert irritation toward those she best loved, her alienation from Kennicott, her disappointment in Guy Pollock, her uneasiness in the presence of Ida. She had enough self-control to confine herself to, yes, men, the dear blundering souls, we do have to get off and laugh at them. Of course we do, not that you have to laugh at Dr. Kennicott so much, but my man, heavens, now there's a rare old bird, reading story-books when he ought to be tending to business. Marcus Westlake, I say to him, you're a romantic old fool. And does he get angry? He does not. He chuckles and says, Yes, my beloved, folks do say that married people grow to resemble each other. Drat him! Mrs. Westlake laughed comfortably. After such a disclosure, what could Carol do but return the courtesy by remarking that, as for Kennicott, he wasn't romantic enough, the darling? Before she left, she had babbled to Mrs. Westlake her dislike for Aunt Bessie, the fact that Kennicott's income was now more than five thousand a year her view of the reason why Vida had married Ramy, which included some thoroughly insincere praise of Ramy's kind heart, her opinion of the library board, just what Kennicott had said about Mrs. Carthal's diabetes, and what Kennicott thought of the several surgeons in the cities. She went home soothed by confession, inspirited by finding a new friend. 4. The Tragic Comedy of the Domestic Situation Oscarina went back home to help on the farm, and Carol had a succession of maids, with gaps between. The lack of servants was becoming one of the most cramping problems of the prairie town. Increasingly the farmer's daughters rebelled against village dullness, and against the unchanged attitude of the Juanitas toward hired girls. They went off to city kitchens, or to city shops and factories, that they might be free and even human after hours. The Jolly Seventeen were delighted at Carol's desertion by the loyal Oscarina. They reminded her that she had said, I don't have any trouble with maids. See how Oscarina stays on. Between incumbencies of Finn maids from the North Woods, Germans from the prairies, occasional Swedes and Norwegians and Icelanders, Carol did her own work, and endured Aunt Bessie skittering in to tell her how to dampen her broom for fluffy dust, how to sugar doughnuts how to stuff a goose. Carol was deft and won shy praise from Kennicott, but as her shoulder-blades began to sting, she wondered how many millions of women had lied to themselves during the death-rimmed years through which they had pretended to enjoy the puerile methods persisting in housework. She doubted the convenience, and as a natural sequent, the sanctity of the monogamous and separate home which she had regarded as the basis of all decent life. She considered her doubts vicious. She refused to remember how many of the women of the Jolly Seventeen nagged their husbands and were nagged by them. She energetically did not whine to Kennicott. But her eyes ached. She was not the girl in breeches and a flannel shirt who had cooked over a campfire in the Colorado Mountains five years ago. Her ambition was to get to bed at nine. Her strongest emotion was resentment over rising at half-past six to care for Hugh. The back of her neck ached as she got out of bed. 
She was cynical about the joys of a simple, laborious life. She understood why workmen and workmen's wives are not grateful to their kind employers. At mid-morning, when she was momentarily free from the ache in her neck and back, she was glad of the reality of work. The hours were living and nimble. But she had no desire to read the eloquent little newspaper essays in praise of labor which are daily written by the white-browed journalistic prophets. She felt independent and, though she hid it, a bit surly. In cleaning the house she pondered upon the maid's room. It was a slant-roofed, small-windowed hole above the kitchen, oppressive in summer, frigid in winter. She saw that while she had been considering herself an unusually good mistress, she had been permitting her friends B. and Oscarina to live in a sty. She complained to Kennicott. "'What's the matter with it?' he growled, as they stood on the perilous stairs dodging up from the kitchen. She commented upon the sloping roof of unplastered boards stained in brown rings by the rain, the uneven floor, the cot and its tumbled, discouraged-looking quilts, the broken rocker, the distorting mirror. "'Maybe it ain't any hotel Radisson parlor, but still, it's so much better than anything these hired girls are accustomed to at home that they think it's fine. Seems foolish to spend money when they wouldn't appreciate it." But that night he drawled, with the casualness of a man who wishes to be surprising and delightful, "'Carrie, don't know but what we might begin to think about building a new house one of these days. How'd you like that?' "'Why, I'm getting to the point now where I feel we can afford one. And a corker. I'll show this burg something like a real house. We'll put one over on Sam and Harry. Make folks sit up and take notice." Yes, she said. He did not go on. Daily he returned to the subject of the new house, but as to time and mode he was indefinite. At first she believed. She babbled of a low stone house with lattice windows and tulip beds, of colonial brick of a white-framed cottage with green shutters and dormer windows. To her enthusiasms he answered, "'Well, yes, might be worth thinking about. Remember where I put my pipe?' When she pressed him he fidgeted, "'I don't know. Seems to me those kind of houses you speak of have been overdone.' It proved that what he wanted was a house exactly like Sam Clark's, which was exactly like every third new house in every town in the country a square, yellow stolidity with immaculate clabberds, a broad-screened porch, tidy grass-plots, and concrete walks, a house resembling the mind of a merchant who votes the party ticket straight and goes to church once a month and owns a good car. He admitted, "'Well, yes, maybe it isn't so darn artistic, but—matter of fact, though, I don't want a place just like Sam's. Maybe I would cut off that fool tower he's got and I think probably it would look better painted a nice cream color. That yellow on Sam's house is too kind of flashy. Then there's another kind of house that's mighty nice and substantial-looking, with shingles, in a nice brown stain, instead of clabberds. Seen some in Minneapolis. You're way off your base when you say I only like one kind of house." Uncle Whittier and Aunt Bessie came in one evening when Carol was sleepily advocating a rose-garden cottage. You've had a lot of experience with housekeeping, Annie, and don't you think," Kennicott appealed, that it would be sensible to have a nice square house and pay more attention to getting a crackerjack furnace than to all this architecture and doodads? 
Aunt Bessie worked her lips as though they were an elastic band. "'Why, of course. I know how it is with young folks like you, Carrie. You want towers and bay windows and pianos and heaven knows what all, but the thing to get is closets and a good furnace and a handy place to hang out the washing, and the rest don't matter.' Uncle Whittier dribbled a little, put his face near to Carol's, and sputtered, "'Course it don't. What do you care what folks think about the outside of your house? It's the inside you're living in. None of my business, but I must say, you young folks that rather have cakes than potatoes get me riled.' She reached her room before she became savage. Below, dreadfully near, she could hear the broom-swish of Aunt Bessie's voice and the mop-pounding of Uncle Whittier's grumble. She had a reasonless dread that they would intrude on her, then a fear that she would yield to Gopher Prairie's conception of duty toward an Aunt Bessie and go downstairs to be nice. She felt the demand for standardized behavior coming in waves from all the citizens who sat in their sitting-rooms watching her with respectable eyes, waiting, demanding, unyielding. She snarled. "'Oh, all right, I'll go.' She pouted her nose, straightened her collar, and coldly marched downstairs. The three elders ignored her. They had advanced from the new house to agreeable general fussing. Aunt Bessie was saying, in a tone like the munching of dry toast, "'I do think Mr. Stowbody ought to have had that rain-pipe fixed at our store right away. I went to see him Tuesday morning before ten. No, it was a couple of minutes after ten. But anyway, it was long before noon. I know because I went right from the bank to the meat-market to get some steak. My, I think it's outrageous the prices Olison and McGuire charge for their meat, and it isn't as if they give you a good cut either, but just any old thing, and I had time to get it, and I stopped in at Mrs. Bogart's to ask about her rheumatism." Carol was watching Uncle Whittier. She knew from his taut expression that he was not listening to Aunt Bessie, but hurting his own thoughts, and that he would interrupt her bluntly. He did. "'Will, where can I get an extra pair of pants for this coat and vest? Don't want to pay too much.' "'Well, guess Nat Hicks can make you up a pair. But if I were you, I'd drop into Ike Rifkin's. His prices are lower than the Bontons.' "'Humph! Got the new stove in your office yet?' "'No, been looking at some at Sam Clark's, but—well, you ought to get in.' Don't do to put off getting a stove all summer, and then have it come cold on you in the fall." Carol smiled upon them ingratiatingly. "'Do you dears mind if I slip up to bed? I'm rather tired. Clean the upstairs today.' She retreated. She was certain that they were discussing her and foully forgiving her. She lay awake till she heard the distant creak of a bed which indicated that Kennicott had retired. Then she felt safe. It was Kennicott who brought up the matter of the smales at breakfast. With no visible connection, he said, "'Uncle Whit is kind of clumsy, but just the same, he's a pretty wise old coot. He's certainly making good with the store.' Carol smiled, and Kennicott was pleased that she had come to her senses. "'As Whit says, after all, the first thing is to have the inside of a house right, and darn the people on the outside looking in.' It seemed settled that the house was to be a sound example of the Sam Clark school. Kennicott made much of erecting it entirely for her and the baby. He spoke of closets for her frocks, and a comfy sewing-room, but when he drew on a leaf from an old account-book—he was a paper-saver and a string-picker, 
the plans for the garage, he gave much more attention to a cement floor and a workbench and a gasoline tank than he had to the sewing rooms. She sat back and was afraid. In the present rookery there were odd things. A step up from the hall to the dining-room. A picturesqueness in the shed and bedraggled lilac bush. But the new place would be smooth, standardized, fixed. It was probable, now that Kennicott was past forty and settled, that this would be the last venture he would ever make in building. So long as she stayed in this ark, she would always have a possibility of change, but once she was in the new house, there she would sit for all the rest of her life, there she would die. Desperately she wanted to put it off, against the chance of miracles. While Kennicott was chattering about a patent swing-door for the garage, she saw the swing-doors of a prison. She never voluntarily returned to the project. Aggrieved, Kennicott stopped drawing plans, and in ten days the new house was forgotten. 5. Every year since their marriage, Carol had longed for a trip through the East. Every year Kennicott had talked of attending the American Medical Association convention. Then afterwards we could do the East up brown. I know New York clean through. Spent pretty near a week there. But I would like to see New England and all these historic places and have some seafood." He talked of it from February to May, and in May he invariably decided that coming confinement cases or land deals would prevent his getting away from home base for very long this year, and no sense going till we can do it right. The weariness of dishwashing had increased her desire to go. She pictured herself looking at Emerson's manse, bathing in a surf of jade and ivory wearing a trottoir and a summer fur, meeting an aristocratic stranger. In the spring Kennicott had pathetically volunteered, "'Spose I'd like to get in a good long tour this summer, but with Gould and Mackaway and so many patients depending on me, don't see how I can make it. By golly, I feel like a tightwad, though, not taking you.' Through all this restless July, after she had tasted Bresnahan's disturbing flavor of travel and gaiety, she wanted to go but she said nothing. They spoke of and postponed a trip to the Twin Cities. When she suggested, as though it were a tremendous joke, "'I think Baby and I might up and leave you and run off to Cape Cod by ourselves,' his only reaction was, "'Golly, don't know but what you may almost have to do that if we don't get in a trip next year.' Toward the end of July he proposed, "'Say, the Beavers are holding a convention in Girolamon, street fair and everything. We might go down tomorrow. And I'd like to see Dr. Calibri about some business. Put in the whole day. Might help some to make up for our trip. Fine fellow, Dr. Calibri." Jeralemon was a prairie town of the size of Gopher Prairie. Their motor was out of order, and there was no passenger train at an early hour. They went down by freight train, after the weighty and conversational business of leaving Hugh with Aunt Bessie. Carol was exultant over this irregular jaunting. It was the first unusual thing, except the glance of Bresnahan, that had happened since the weaning of Hugh. They rode in the caboose, the small red cupola-topped car jerked along at the end of the train. It was a roving shanty, the cabin of a land-schooner, with black oilcloth seats along the side and for desk a pine board to be let down on hinges. Kennicott played seven-up with the conductor and two brakemen. Carol liked the blue silk kerchiefs about the brakemen's throats, 
she liked their welcome to her and their air of friendly independence. Since there were no sweating passengers crammed in beside her, she reveled in the train's slowness. She was part of these lakes and tawny wheat-fields, she liked the smell of hot earth and clean grease, and the leisurely chug-a-chug, chug-a-chug of the trucks was a song of contentment in the sun. She pretended that she was going to the Rockies. When they reached Jeralaman she was radiant with holiday-making. Her eagerness began to lessen the moment they stopped at a red-frame station exactly like the one they had just left at Grofer Prairie, and Kennicott yawned. Right on time! Just in time for dinner at the Calabrese! I phoned the doctor from G.P. that we'd be here. We'll catch the freight that gets in before twelve, I told him. He said he'd meet us at the depot and take us right up to the house for dinner. Calibri is a good man, and you'll find his wife is a mighty brainy little woman, bright as a dollar. By golly, there he is." Dr. Calibri was a squat, clean-shaven, conscientious-looking man of forty. He was curiously like his own brown-painted motor-car, with eyeglasses for windshield. "'Want you to meet my wife, doctor. Carrie, make you acquainted with Dr. Calibri,' said Kennicott. Calibri bowed quietly and shook her hand, but before he had finished shaking it he was concentrating upon Kennicott with, "'Nice to see you, doctor. Say, don't let me forget to ask you about what you did in that exophthalmic goiter case, that bohemian woman at Joaquinian.' The two men, on the front seat of the car, chanted goiters and ignored her. She did not know it. She was trying to feed her illusion of adventure by staring at unfamiliar houses, drab cottages, artificial stone bungalows, square, painty stolidities with immaculate clapboards and broad screen porches and tidy grass-plots. Calibri handed her over to his wife, a thick woman who called her dearie and asked if she was hot and visibly searching for conversation produced, "'Let's see, you and the doctor have a little one, haven't you?' At dinner Mrs. Calibri served the corned beef and cabbage and looked steamy, looked like the steamy leaves of cabbage. The men were oblivious of their wives as they gave the social passwords of Main Street, the orthodox opinions on weather, crops and motor-cars, then flung away restraint and gyrated in the debauch of shop-talk. Stroking his chin, drawling in the ecstasy of being erudite, Kennicott inquired, "'Say, doctor, what success have you had with thyroid for treating of pains in the legs before childbirth?" Carol did not resent their assumption that she was too ignorant to be admitted to masculine mysteries. She was used to it. But the cabbage and Mrs. Calibri's monotonous, I don't know what we're coming to with all this difficulty getting hired girls, were gumming her eyes with drowsiness. She sought to clear them by appealing to Calibri in a manner of exaggerated liveliness. Doctor. Have the medical societies in Minnesota ever advocated legislation for help to nursing mothers?" Calibri slowly revolved toward her. Uh, I've never—um—never uh, looked into it. I don't believe much in getting mixed up in politics. He turned squarely from her, and peering earnestly at Kennicott resumed, Doctor, what's been your experience with unilateral pyelonephritis? Buckburn of Baltimore advocates decapsulation and nephrotomy, but seems to me—" Not till after two did they rise. In the lee of the stonily mature trio Carol proceeded to the street fair which added mundane gaiety to the annual rites of the united and fraternal order of beavers. Beavers, human beavers were everywhere. 
thirty-second-degree beavers in gray sack suits and decent derbies, more flippant beavers in crash summer coats and straw hats, rustic beavers in shirt-sleeves and frayed suspenders. But whatever his caste symbols, every beaver was distinguished by an enormous shrimp-colored ribbon lettered in silver, Sir Knight and Brother, UFOB, Annual State Convention. On the motherly shirtwaist of each of their wives was a badge, Sir Knight's Lady. The Duluth delegation had brought their famous beaver amateur band, in zouave costumes of green velvet jacket, blue trousers, and scarlet fez. The strange thing was that, beneath their scarlet pride, the zouaves' faces remained those of American businessmen, pink, smooth, eyeglassed. And as they stood playing in a circle, at the corner of Main Street and Second, as they tootled on fifes or with swelling cheeks blew into cornets, their eyes remained as owlish as though they were sitting at desks under the sign, This is my busy day. Carol had supposed that the beavers were average citizens organized for the purposes of getting cheap life insurance and playing poker at the lodge rooms every second Wednesday, but she saw a large poster which proclaimed, Beavers, UFOB, the greatest influence for good citizenship in the country, the jolliest aggregation of red-blooded, open-handed, hustle-em-up good fellows in the world. Geralaman welcomes you to her hospitable city. Kennicott read the poster, and to Calibri admired, "'Strong lodge, the beavers. Never joined. Don't know but what I will.' Calibri adumbrated, "'They're a good bunch. Good strong lodge. See that fellow there that's playing the snare drum? He's the smartest wholesale grocer in Duluth, they say. Guess it would be worth joining. Oh, say, are you doing much insurance examining?' They went on to the street fair. Lining one block of Main Street were the attractions, two hot-dog stands, a lemonade and popcorn stand, a merry-go-round, and booths in which balls might be thrown at rag-dolls, if one wished to throw balls at rag-dolls. The dignified delegates were shy of the booths, but country boys with brick-red necks and pale blue ties and bright yellow shoes, who had brought sweethearts into town in somewhat dusty enlisted fords, were wolfing sandwiches, drinking strawberry pop out of bottles, and riding the revolving crimson and gold horses. They shrieked and giggled. Peanut roasters whistled. The merry-go-round pounded out monotonous music. The barkers bawled, "'Here's your chance! Here's your chance! Come on here, boy! Come on here! Give that girl a good time! Give her a swell time! Here's your chance to win a genuine gold watch for five cents! Half a dime! The twentieth part of a dollar!' The prairie sun jabbed the unshaded street with shafts that were like poisonous thorns the tinny cornices above the brick stores were glaring. The dull breeze scattered dust on sweaty beavers who crawled along in tight scorching new shoes, up two blocks and back, up two blocks and back, wondering what to do next, working at having a good time. Carol's head ached as she trailed behind the unsmiling calibres along the block of booths. She chirruped at Kennicott. Let's be wild. Let's ride on the merry-go-round and grab a gold ring." Kennicott considered it, and mumbled to Calibri, "'Think you folks would like to stop and try ride on the merry-go-round?' Calibri considered it, and mumbled to his wife, "'Think you'd like to stop and try ride on the merry-go-round?' Mrs. Calibri smiled in a washed-out manner, and sighed, "'Oh, no, I don't believe I care too much, but you folks go ahead and try it.' Calibri stated to Kennicott, no, I don't believe we care to a whole lot. 
But you folks go ahead and try it. Kennicott summarized the whole case against wildness. Let's try it some other time, Carrie. She gave it up. She looked at the town. She saw that in adventuring from Main Street Gopher Prairie to Main Street Geralaman she had not stirred. There were the same two-story brick groceries with lodge signs above the awnings, the same one-story wooden millinery shop, the same fire-brick garages, the same prairie at the open end of the wide street, the same people wondering whether the levity of eating a hot-dog sandwich would break their taboos. They reached Gopher Prairie at nine in the evening. "'You look kind of hot,' said Kennicott. "'Yes.' Jerelliman is an enterprising town, don't you think so?" She broke. No, I think it's an ash heap. Why, Carrie? He worried over it for a week. While he ground his plate with his knife as he energetically pursued fragments of bacon, he peeped at her. End of chapter 24《Chapter 25 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 25 1. Carrie's all right. She's finicky, but she'll get over it. But I wish she'd hurry up about it. What she can't understand is that a fellow practicing medicine in a small town like this has got to cut out the highbrow stuff not spend all his time going to concerts and shining his shoes. Not but what he might be just as good at all these intellectual and art things as some other folks, if he had the time for it." Dr. Will Kennicott was brooding in his office, during a free moment toward the end of the summer afternoon. He hunched down in his tilted desk-chair, undid a button of his shirt, glanced at the state news in the back of the Journal of the American Medical Association, dropped the magazine, leaned back with his right thumb hooked in the armhole of his vest and his left thumb stroking the back of his hair. "'By golly, she's taking an awful big chance, though. You'd expect her to try by and by that I won't be a parter lizard. She says we try to make her over. Well, she's always trying to make me over, from a perfectly good M.D. into a damn poet with a socialist necktie. She'd have a fit if she knew how many women would be willing to cuddle up to friend Will and comfort him, if he'd give them the chance. There's still a few dames that think the old man isn't so darn unattractive. I'm glad I've ducked all that woman game since I've been married, but be swished if sometimes I don't feel tempted to shine up to some girl that has sense enough to take life as it is, some frau that doesn't want to talk Longfellow all the time, but just hold my hand and say, You look all in, honey. Take it easy and don't try to talk." Carrie thinks she's such a whale at analyzing folks, giving the town the once-over, telling us where we get off. Why, she'd simply turn up her toes and croak if she found out how much she doesn't know about the high old times a wise guy could have in this burg on the QT if he wasn't faithful to his wife. But I am. At that, no matter what fault she's got, there's nobody here, no nor in Minneapolis either, that's as nice-looking and square and bright as Carrie. She ought to have been an artist or a writer or one of those things. But once she took a shot at living here, she ought to stick by it. Pretty, Lord, yes, but cold. She simply doesn't know what passion is. 
She simply hasn't got an idea how hard it is for a full-blooded man to go on pretending to be satisfied with just being endured. It gets awful tiresome, having to feel like a criminal just because I'm normal. She gets so she doesn't even care for my kissing her. Well, I guess I can weather it, same as I did earning my way through school and getting started in practice, but I wonder how long I can stand being an outsider in my own home." He sat up at the entrance of Mrs. Dave Dyer. She slumped into a chair and gasped with the heat. He chuckled. "'Well, well, Maud, this is fine. Where's the subscription list? What cause do I get robbed for this trip?' "'I haven't any subscription list, Will. I want to see you professionally.' "'And you a Christian scientist? Have you given that up?' "'What next? New thought or spiritualism?' "'No, I have not given it up.' Strikes me it's kind of a knock on the sisterhood you're coming to see a doctor. No, it isn't. It's just that my faith isn't strong enough yet. So there now. And besides, you are kind of consoling, Will. I mean as a man, not just as a doctor. You're so strong and placid." He sat on the edge of his desk, coatless, his vest swinging open with the thick gold line of his watch-chain across the gap, his hands in his trousers' pockets his big arms bent and easy. As she purred, he cocked an interested eye. Maud Dyer was neurotic, religiocentric, faded. Her emotions were moist, and her figure was unsystematic, splendid thighs and arms, with thick ankles, and a body that was bulgy in the wrong places. But her milky skin was delicious, her eyes were alive, her chestnut hair shone, and there was a tender slope from her ears to the shadowy place below her jaw. With unusual solicitude he uttered his stock phrase. "'Well, what seems to be the matter, Maud?' "'I've got a, such a backache all the time. I'm afraid the organic trouble that you treated me for is coming back.' "'Any definite signs of it?' "'No, but I think you'd better examine me.' "'Nope. Don't believe it's necessary, Maud. To be honest, between old friends, I think your troubles are mostly imaginary.' I can't really advise you to have an examination." She flushed, looked out of the window. He was conscious that his voice was not impersonal and even. She turned quickly. "'Will, you always say my troubles are imaginary. Why can't you be scientific? I've been reading an article about these new nerve specialists, and they claim that lots of imaginary ailments—yes, and lots of real pain, too—are what they call psychoses and they order a change in a woman's way of living so she can get on a higher plane. Wait, wait! Whoa up! Wait now! Don't mix up your Christian science and your psychology. They're two entirely different fads. You'll be mixing in socialism next. You're as bad as Carrie with your psychoses. Why, good Lord, Maud, I could talk about neuroses and psychoses and inhibitions and repressions and complexes just as well as any damn specialist, if I got paid for it if I was in the city and had the nerve to charge the fees that those fellows do. If a specialist stung you for a hundred-dollar consultation fee and told you to go to New York to duck Dave's nagging, you'd do it, to save the hundred dollars. But you know me, I'm your neighbor. You see me mowing the lawn. You figure I'm just a plug general practitioner. If I said, go to New York, Dave and you would laugh your heads off and say, look at the airs Will is putting on. What does he think he is?" As a matter of fact, you're right. 
you have a perfectly well-developed case of repression of sex instinct, and it raises the old Ned with your body. What you need is to get away from Dave and travel, yes, and go to every doggone kind of new thought and Baha'i and Swami and hoop-de-doodle meeting you can find. I know it, well as you do, but how can I advise it? Dave would be up here raking my hide off. I'm willing to be family physician and priest and lawyer and plumber and wet-nurse, but I draw the line at making Dave loosen up on money. Too hard a job in weather like this. So, savvy, my dear? Believe it will rain if this heat keeps. But Will, he'd never give it to me on my say-so. He'd never let me go away. You know how Dave is so jolly and liberal in society, and oh, just loves to match quarters, and such a perfect sport if he loses. But at home he pinches a nickel till the buffalo drips blood. I have to nag him for every single dollar. Sure, I know, but it's your fight, honey. Keep after him. He'd simply resent my butting in." He crossed over and patted her shoulder. Outside the window, beyond the fly-screen that was opaque with dust and cottonwood lint, Main Street was hushed except for the impatient throb of a standing motor-car. She took his firm hand, pressed his knuckles against her cheek. "'Oh, Will, Dave is so mean and little and noisy, the shrimp. You're so calm. When he's cutting up at parties I see you standing back and watching him, the way a mastiff watches a terrier.' He fought for professional dignity with, "'Dave's not a bad fellow.' Lingeringly she released his hand. Will, drop round the house this evening and scold me. Make me good and sensible. And I'm so lonely. If I did, Dave would be there, and we'd have to play cards. It's his evening off from the store. No, the clerk just got called to Corinth. Mother's sick. Dave will be in the store till midnight. Oh, come on over. There's some lovely beer on the ice, and we can sit and talk and be all cool and lazy. That wouldn't be wrong of us, would it? No, no, of course it wouldn't be wrong. But still, I oughtn't to. He saw Carol, slim black and ivory, cool, scornful of intrigue. All right, but I'll be so lonely. Her throat seemed young, above her loose blouse of muslin and machine lace. Tell you, Maud, I'll drop in just for a minute, if I haven't be called down that way. If you'd like demurely. Oh, Will, I just want comfort. I know you're all married, and my such a proud papa, and of course now, if I could just sit near you in the dusk and be quiet and forget Dave, you will come. Sure I will. I'll expect you. I'll be lonely if you don't come. Good-bye." He cursed himself. Darned fool! What I promised to go for! I'll have to keep my promise, or she'll feel hurt. She's a good, decent, affectionate girl, and Dave's a cheapskate, all right. She's got more life to her than Carol has. All my fault, anyway. Why can't I be more cagey, like Calibri and McGannum and the rest of the doctors? Oh, I am, but Maud's such a demanding idiot. Deliberately bamboozling me into going up there tonight? Matter of principle. Ought not to let her get away with it. I won't go. I'll call her up and tell her I won't go. Me with Carrie at home, finest little woman in the world, and a messy-minded female like Maud Dyer? No, sir. Though there is no need of hurting her feelings. 
I may just drop in for a second, to tell her I can't stay. All my fault, anyway. Ought never to have started in and jollied Maud along in the old days. If it's my fault, I've got no right to punish Maud. I could just drop in for a second, then pretend I had a country call and beat it. Damn nuisance, though, having to fake up excuses. Lord, why can't the women let you alone? Just because once or twice, seven hundred million years ago, you were a poor fool, why can't they let you forget it? Maud's own fault. I'll stay strictly away. Take Carrie to the movies and forget Maud. But it would be kind of hot at the movies tonight. He fled from himself. He rammed on his hat, threw his coat over his arm, banged the door, locked it, tramped downstairs. I won't go, he said sturdily, and as he said it, he would have given a good deal to know whether he was going. He was refreshed, as always, by the familiar windows and faces. It restored his soul to have Sam Clark trustingly bellow, Better come down to the lake this evening and have a swim, Doc. Ain't you going to open your cottage at all this summer? By golly, we miss you. He noted the progress on the new garage. He had triumphed in the laying of every course of bricks. In them he had seen the growth of the town. His pride was ushered back to its throne by the respectfulness of Ole Sundquist. Evening, Doc. The woman is a lot better. That was swell medicine you gave her. He was calmed by the mechanicalness of the tasks at home, burning the gray web of a tentworm on the wild cherry tree, sealing with gum a cut in the right front tire of the car, sprinkling the road before the house. The hose was cool to his hands. As the bright arrows fell with a faint puttering sound, a crescent of blackness was formed in the gray dust. Dave Dyer came along. "'We're going, Dave. Down to the store. Just had supper.' But Thursday's your night off. Sure, but Pete went home. His mother's supposed to be sick. Gosh, these clerks you get nowadays. Overpay em, and then they won't work. That's tough, Dave. You'll have to work clear up till twelve, then. Yup, better drop in and have a cigar if you're downtown. Well, I may at that. May have to go down and see Mrs. Champ Perry. She's ailing. So long, Dave. Kennicott had not yet entered the house. He was conscious that Carol was near him, that she was important, that he was afraid of her disapproval. But he was content to be alone. When he had finished sprinkling, he strolled into the house, up to the baby's room, and cried to Hugh, "'Story time for the old man, eh?' Carol was in a low chair, framed and haloed by the window behind her, an image in pale gold. The baby curled in her lap, his head on her arm, listening with gravity while she sung from Jean Field. Tis little luddy dud in the morning, tis little luddy dud at night, and all day long tis the same dear song of that growing, crowing, knowing little sprite. Kennicott was enchanted. Maud Dyer, I should say not. When the current maid bawled upstairs, Supper on de table! Kennicott was upon his back, flapping his hands in the earnest effort to be a seal, thrilled by the strength with which his son kicked him. He slipped his arm about Carol's shoulder. He went down to supper rejoicing that he was cleansed of perilous stuff. While Carol was putting the baby to bed, he sat on the front steps. Nat Hicks, Taylor and Rue, came to sit beside him. Between waves of his hand as he drove off mosquitoes, Nat whispered, 
Say, Doc, you don't feel like imagining you're a bachelor again and coming out for a time tonight, do you? As how? You know this new dressmaker, Mrs. Swiftwaite? Swell dame with blondine hair? Well, she's a pretty good goer. Me and Harry Haydock are going to take her and that fat wren that works in the Bonton, nice kid too, on an auto ride tonight. Maybe we'll drive down to that farm Harry bought. We're taking some beer and some of the smoothest rye you ever laid tongue to. I'm not predicting none, but if we don't have a picnic, I'll miss my guess. Go to it. No skin off my ear, Nat. Think I want to be the fifth wheel in the coach? No, but look here. The little Swiftweight has a friend with her from Winona, dandy looker and some gay bird, and Harry and me thought maybe you'd like to sneak off for one evening. No, no. Rats now, Doc. Forget your everlasting dignity. You used to be a pretty good sport yourself when you were foot-free. It may have been the fact that Mrs. Swiftwaite's friend remained to Kennicott an ill-told rumor. It may have been Carol's voice, wistful in the pallid evening, as she sang to Hugh. It may have been natural and commendable virtue, but certainly he was positive. Nope, I'm married for keeps. Don't pretend to be any saint. Like to get out and raise cane and shoot a few drinks. But a fellow owes a duty. Straight now. Won't you feel like a sneak when you come back to the missus after your jamboree? Me? My moral in life is, what they don't know won't hurt em none. The way to handle wives, like the fellow says, is to catch em early, treat em rough, and tell em nothing. Well, that's your business, I suppose. But I can't get away with it. Besides that, way I figure it, this illicit love-making is the one game that you always lose at. If you do lose, you feel foolish, and if you win, as soon as you find out how little it is that you've been scheming for, why then, you lose worse than ever. Nature's stinging us as usual. But at that, I guess a lot of wives in this burg would be surprised if they knew everything that goes on behind their backs, eh, Natty? Would they? Say, boy, if the good wives knew what some of the boys get away with when they go down to the cities, why, they'd throw a fit. Sure you won't come, Doc? Think of getting all cooled off by a good long drive, and then the lovely swift weight's white hand makes you a good stiff highball. Nope, nope, sorry, guess I won't, grumbled Kennicott. He was glad that Nat showed signs of going, but he was restless. He heard Carol on the stairs. Come have a seat, have the whole earth, he shouted jovially. She did not answer his joviality. She sat on the porch, rocked silently, then sighed. So many mosquitoes out here. You haven't had the screen fixed. As though he was testing her, he said quietly, Headaching again? Oh, not much. But this maid is so slow to learn. I have to show her everything. I had to clean most of the silver myself. And Hugh was so bad all afternoon. He whined so. Poor soul, he was hot but he did wear me out. Uh, you usually want to get out. Like to walk down to the lake shore? The girl can stay home. Or go to the movies? Come on, let's go to the movies. Or shall we jump in the car and run out to Sam's for a swim? If you don't mind, dear, I'm afraid I'm rather tired. Why don't you sleep downstairs tonight, on the couch? Be cooler. I'm going to bring down my mattress. Come on. Keep the old man company. Can't tell. 
I might get scared of burglars. Let little fellow like me stay all alone by himself? It's sweet of you to think of it, but I like my own room so much. But you go ahead and do it, dear. Why don't you sleep on the couch instead of putting your mattress on the floor? Well, I believe I'll run in and read for just a second, want to look at the last Vogue, and then perhaps I'll go bye-bye. Unless you want me, dear. Of course, if there's anything you really want me for. No, no. Matter of fact, I really ought to run down and see Mrs. Champ Perry. She's ailing. So you skip in and may drop in at the drug store. If I'm not home when you get sleepy, don't wait up for me. He kissed her, rambled off, nodded to Jim Howland, stopped indifferently to speak to Mrs. Terry Gould. But his heart was racing, his stomach was constricted. He walked more slowly. He reached Dave Dyer's yard. He glanced in. On the porch, sheltered by a wild grapevine, was the figure of a woman in white. He heard the swing-couch creak as she sat up abruptly, peered, then leaned back and pretended to relax. "'Be nice to have some cool beer. Just drop in for a second, he insisted, as he opened the dire gate. 2. Mrs. Bogart was calling upon Carol, protected by Aunt Bessie Smale. "'Have you heard about this awful woman that's supposed to have come here to do dressmaking, a Mrs. Swiftwaite, awful peroxide blonde?' moaned Mrs. Bogart. "'They say there's some of the awfulest goings-on at her house, mere boys and old grey-headed drips sneaking in their evenings and drinking liquor and every kind of goings-on. We women can't never realize the carnal thoughts in the hearts of men. I tell you, even though I've been acquainted with Will Kennicott almost since he was a mere boy, seems like, I wouldn't trust even him. Who knows what design in women might tempt him? Especially a doctor, with women rushing in to see him at his office and all. You know I never hint around, but haven't you felt that—' Carol was furious. I don't pretend that Will has no faults, but one thing I do know, he's as simple-hearted about what you call goings-on as a babe. And if he ever were such a sad dog as to look at another woman, I certainly hope he'd have spirit enough to do the tempting, and not be coaxed into it as in your depressing picture." "'Why, what a wicked thing to say, Carrie!' from Aunt Bessie. "'No, I mean it.' Oh, of course, I don't mean it. But I know every thought in his head so well that he couldn't hide anything even if he wanted to. Now, this morning. He was out late last night. He had to go see Mrs. Perry, who was ailing, and then fix a man's hand. And this morning he was so quiet and thoughtful at breakfast, and— She leaned forward, breathed dramatically to the two perched harpies. What do you suppose he was thinking of? "'What?' trembled Mrs. Bogart. "'Whether the grass needs cutting, probably.' "'There, there, don't mind my naughtiness. I have some fresh-made raisin cookies for you.'" End of chapter 25「Chapter 26 Of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26 1. Carol's liveliest interest was in her walks with the baby. You wanted to know what the box elder tree said, and what the Ford garage said, and what the big cloud said, and she told him, 
with a feeling that she was not in the least making up stories, but discovering the souls of things. They had an especial fondness for the hitching post in front of the mill. It was a brown post, stout and agreeable, the smooth leg of it held the sunlight, while its neck, grooved by hitching straps, tickled one's fingers. Carol had never been awake to the earth except as a show of changing color and great satisfying masses. She had lived in people and in ideas about having ideas. But Hugh's questions made her attentive to the comedies of sparrows, robins, blue jays, yellowhammers. She regained her pleasure in the arching flight of swallows, and added to it a solicitude about their nests and family squabbles. She forgot her seasons of boredom. She said to Hugh, We're two fat, disreputable old minstrels roaming round the world. And he echoed her, Roaming round, roaming round. The high adventure, the secret place to which they both fled joyously, was the house of Miles and B. and Olaf Bjornstam. Kennicott steadily disapproved of the Bjornstams. He protested, What do you want to talk to that crank for? He hinted that a former Swede hired girl was low company for the son of Dr. Will Kennicott. She did not explain. She did not quite understand it herself. Did not know that in the Bjornstams she found her friends, her club, her sympathy, and her ration of blessed cynicism. For a time the gossip of Juanita Haydock and the Jolly Seventeen had been a refuge from the droning of Aunt Bessie, but the relief had not continued. The young matrons made her nervous. They talked so loud, always so loud. They filled a room with clashing cackle. Their jests and gags they repeated nine times over. Unconsciously she had discarded the Jolly Seventeen, Guy Pollock, Vida, and everyone, save Mrs. Dr. Westlake and the friends whom she did not clearly know as friends, the Bjornstams. To Hugh the Red Swede was the most heroic and powerful person in the world. With unrestrained adoration he trotted after while Miles fed the cows, chased his one pig, an animal of lax and migratory instincts, or dramatically slaughtered a chicken. And to Hugh Olaf was lord among mortal men, less stalwart than the old monarch, King Miles, but more understanding of the relations and values of things, of small sticks, lone playing cards, and irretrievably injured hoops. Carol saw, though she did not admit, that Olaf was not only more beautiful than her own dark child, but more gracious. Olaf was a Norse chieftain, straight, sunny-haired, large-limbed, resplendently amiable to his subjects. Hugh was a vulgarian, a bustling businessman. It was Hugh that bounced and said, Let's play! Olaf that opened luminous blue eyes and agreed, All right, in condescending gentleness. If Hugh batted him, and Hugh did bat him, Olaf was unafraid but shocked. In magnificent solitude he marched toward the house, while Hugh bewailed his sin and the overclouding of august favor. The two friends played with an imperial chariot which Miles had made out of a starch-box and four red spools. Together they stuck switches into a mouse-hole, with vast satisfaction, though entirely without known results. B, the chubby and humming bee, impartially gave cookies and scoldings to both children. 
and if Carol refused a cup of coffee and a wafer of buttered knockabrot, she was desolated. Miles had done well with his dairy. He had six cows, two hundred chickens, a cream separator, a Ford truck. In the spring he had built a two-room addition to his shack. That illustrious building was to Hugh a carnival. Uncle Miles did the most spectacular, unexpected things, ran up the ladder, stood on the ridge-pole, waving a hammer and singing something about, To arms, my citizens! nailed shingles faster than Aunt Bessie could iron handkerchiefs, and lifted a two-by-six with Hugh riding on one end and Olaf on the other. Uncle Miles's most ecstatic trick was to make figures, not on paper, but right on a new pine board, with the broadest, softest pencil in the world. There was a thing worth seeing. The Tools In his office father had tools fascinating in their shininess and curious shapes, but they were sharp, they were something called sterized, and they distinctly were not for boys to touch. In fact, it was a good dodge to volunteer, I must not touch, when you looked at the tools on the glass shelves in father's office. But Uncle Miles, who was a person altogether superior to father, let you handle all his kit except the saws. There was a hammer with a silver head, there was a metal thing like a big L. There was a magic instrument, very precious, made out of costly red wood and gold, with a tube which contained a drop. No, it wasn't a drop, it was a nothing, which lived in the water, but the nothing looked like a drop, and it ran in a frightened way up and down the tube, no matter how cautiously you tilted the magic instrument. And there were nails, very different and clever, big valiant spikes, middle-sized ones which were not very interesting, and shingle-nails much jollier than the fussed-up fairies in the yellow book. 2. While he had worked on the edition, Miles had talked frankly to Carol. He admitted now that so long as he stayed in Gopher Prairie he would remain a pariah. B's Lutheran friends were as much offended by his agnostic jibes as the merchants by his radicalism. And I can't seem to keep my mouth shut. I think I'm being a ba lamb and not springing any theories wilder than C-A-T spells cat, but when folks have gone I realize I've been stepping on their pet religious corns. Oh, the mill foreman keeps dropping in, and that Dana shoemaker, and one fellow from Elder's factory, and a few Svenskas, but you know B. Big good-hearted wench like her wants a lot of folks around. Likes to fuss over em. Never satisfied unless she's tiring herself out making coffee for somebody. Once she kidnapped me and drug me to the Methodist church. I goes in, pious as widow Bogart, and sits still and never cracks a smile, while the preacher is favoring us with his misinformation on evolution. But afterwards, when the old stalwarts were pump-handling everybody at the door and calling them brother and sister, they let me sail right by with nary a clinch. They figure I'm the town bad man. Always will be, I guess. It'll have to be Olaf who goes on. And sometimes, blamed if I don't feel like coming out and saying, I've been conservative. Nothing to it. Now I'm going to start something in those rotten one-horse lumber camps west of town. But B's got me hypnotized. Lord, Mrs. Kennicott, do you realize what a jolly, square, faithful woman she is? And I love Olaf. Oh, well, I won't go and get sentimental on you. 
course, I've had thoughts of pulling up stakes and going west. Maybe, if they didn't know it beforehand, they wouldn't find out I'd ever been guilty of trying to think for myself. But, oh, I've worked hard and built up this dairy business, and I hate to start all over again and move B and the kid into another one-room shack. That's how they get us. Encourage us to be thrifty and own our own houses, and then, by golly, they've got us. They know we won't dare risk everything by committing Les... what is it? Les Majesty? I mean, they know we won't be hinting around that, if we had a cooperative bank, we could get along without Stowbody. Well, as long as I can sit and play pinochle with B and tell Whoppers to Olaf about his daddy's adventures in the woods, and how he snared a Wapaloosie and knew Paul Bunyan, why, I don't mind being a bum. It's just for them that I mind. Say, say, don't whisper a word to B, but when I get this edition done, I'm going to buy her a phonograph. He did. While she was busy with the activities her work-hungry muscles found, washing, ironing, mending, baking, dusting, preserving, plucking a chicken, painting the sink, tasks which, because she was Miles's full partner, were exciting and creative, B listened to the phonograph records with rapture like that of cattle in a warm stable. The addition gave her a kitchen with a bedroom above. The original one-room shack was now a living room, with the phonograph, a genuine leather-upholstered golden oak rocker, and a picture of Governor John Johnson. In late July, Carol went to the Bjornstams desirous of a chance to express her opinion of beavers and calibres and geralimans. She found Olaf abed, restless from a slight fever, and B flushed and dizzy but trying to keep up her work. She lured Miles aside and worried, "'They don't look at all well. What's the matter?' "'Their stomachs are out of whack. I wanted to call in Doc Kennicott, but B thinks the Doc doesn't like us. She thinks maybe he's sore because you come down here. But I'm getting worried.' "'I'm going to call the doctor at once.' She yearned over Olaf. His lambent eyes were stupid. He moaned. He rubbed his forehead. "'Have they been eating something that's been bad for them?' she fluttered to Miles. "'Might be bum water.' "'I'll tell you. We used to get our water at Oscar Eklund's place, over across the street. But Oscar kept dinging at me, and hinting I was a tightwad not to dig a well of my own. One time he said, Sure, you socialists are great on divvying up other folks' money, and water. I knew if I kept it up there'd be a fuss, and I ain't safe to have around once a fuss starts. I'm likely to forget myself and let loose with a punch in the snoot. I offered to pay Oscar, but he refused. He'd rather have the chance to kid me. So I starts getting water down at Mrs. Fagarose's, in the hollow there, and I don't believe it's real good figuring to dig my own well this fall." One scarlet word was before Carol's eyes while she listened. She fled to Kennicott's office. He gravely heard her out, nodded, said, "'Be right over.' He examined B and Olaf. He shook his head. "'Yes, looks to me like typhoid.' "'Golly, I've seen typhoid in lumber camps,' groaned Miles, all the strength dripping out of him. Have they got it very bad? Oh, we'll take good care of them," said Kennicott, and for the first time in their acquaintance he smiled on Miles and clapped his shoulder. 
Won't you need a nurse? demanded Carol. Why, to Miles, Kennicott hinted, couldn't you get B's cousin, Tina? She's down at the old folks in the country. Then let me do it, Carol insisted. They need someone to cook for them, and isn't it good to give them sponge baths in typhoid? Yes, all right. Kennicott was automatic. He was the official, the physician. I guess probably it would be hard to get a nurse here in town just now. Mrs. Stiver is busy with an obstetrical case, and that town nurse of yours is off on vacation, ain't she? All right, Bjornstam can spell you at night. All week, from eight each morning till midnight, Carol fed them, bathed them, smoothed sheets, took temperatures. Miles refused to let her cook. Terrified, pallid, noiseless in stocking feet, he did the kitchen work and the sweeping, his big red hands awkwardly careful. Kennicott came in three times a day, unchangingly tender and hopeful in the sick room, even polite to Miles. Carol understood how great was her love for her friends. It bore her through. It made her arms steady and tireless to bathe them. What exhausted her was the sight of B and Olaf turned into flaccid invalids, uncomfortably flushed after taking food, begging for the healing of sleep at night. During the second week Olaf's powerful legs were flabby. Spots of a viciously delicate pink came out on his chest and back. His cheeks sank. He looked frightened. His tongue was brown and revolting. His confident voice dwindled to a bewildered murmur, ceaseless and racking. B had stayed on her feet too long at the beginning. The moment Kennicott had ordered her to bed she had begun to collapse. One early evening she startled them by screaming, in an intense abdominal pain, and within half an hour she was in a delirium. Till dawn Carol was with her, and not all of B's groping through the blackness of half-delirious pain was so pitiful to Carol as the way in which Miles silently peered into the room from the top of the narrow stairs. Carol slept three hours next morning and ran back. B was altogether delirious, but she muttered nothing save, Olaf, we have such a good time. At ten, while Carol was preparing an ice bag in the kitchen, Miles answered a knock. At the front door she saw Vida Sherwin, Maud Dyer, and Mrs. Zitterell, wife of the Baptist pastor. They were carrying grapes and women's magazines, magazines with high-colored pictures and optimistic fiction. We just heard your wife was sick. We've come to see if there isn't something we can do," chirruped Vida. Miles looked steadily at the three women. "'You're too late. You can't do nothing now. Bee's always kind of hoped that you folks would come see her. She wanted to have a chance and be friends. She used to sit waiting for somebody to knock. I've seen her sitting here, waiting. Now—oh, you ain't worth goddamning. He shut the door. All day Carol watched Olaf's strength oozing. He was emaciated. His ribs were grim clear lines, his skin was clammy, his pulse was feeble but terrifyingly rapid. It beat, beat, beat in a drum roll of death. Late that afternoon he sobbed and died. B did not know it. She was delirious. Next morning, when she went, she did not know that Olaf would no longer swing his last sword on the doorstep, 
no longer rule his subjects of the cattle-yard, that Miles's son would not go east to college. Miles, Carol, Kennicott were silent. They washed the bodies together, their eyes veiled. "'Go home now and sleep. You're pretty tired. I can't ever pay you back for what you done,' Miles whispered to Carol. "'Yes. But I'll be back here tomorrow. Go with you to the funeral,' she said laboriously. When the time for the funeral came, Carol was in bed, collapsed. She assumed that the neighbors would go. They had not told her that word of Miles' rebuff to Vida had spread through town, a cyclonic fury. It was only by chance that, leaning on her elbow in bed, she glanced through the window and saw the funeral of B. and Olaf. There was no music, no carriages. There was only Miles Bjornstam, in his black wedding suit, walking quite alone, head down, behind the shabby hearse that bore the bodies of his wife and baby. An hour after, Hugh came into her room crying, and when she said as cheerily as she could, "'What is it, dear?' he besought. "'Mummy, I want to go play with Olaf!' That afternoon Juanita Haydock dropped in to brighten Carol. She said, "'Too bad about this bee that was your hired girl, but I don't waste any sympathy on that man of hers. Everybody says he drank too much and treated his family awful, and that's how they got sick. End of chapter 26「Chapter Twenty Seven of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven. One. A letter from Ramy Wotherspoon in France said that he had been sent to the front, been slightly wounded, been made a captain. From Vida's pride, Carol sought to draw a stimulant to rouse her from depression. Miles had sold his dairy. He had several thousand dollars. To Carol, he said goodbye with a mumbled word, a harsh handshake. Going to buy a farm in northern Alberta, far off from folks as I can get. He turned sharply away, but he did not walk with his former spring. His shoulders seemed old. It was said that before he went he cursed the town. There was talk of arresting him, of riding him on a rail. It was rumored that at the station old Champ Perry rebuked him. "'You better not come back here. We've got respect for your dead, but we haven't got any for a blasphemer and a traitor that won't do anything for his country and only bought one liberty bond.' Some of the people who had been at the station declared that Miles made some dreadful seditious retort, something about loving German workmen more than American bankers, but others asserted that he couldn't find one word with which to answer the veteran, that he merely sneaked up on the platform of the train. He must have felt guilty, everybody agreed, for as the train left town a farmer saw him standing in the vestibule and looking out. His house, with the addition which he had built four months ago, was very near the track on which his train passed. When Carol went there, for the last time, she found Olaf's chariot with its red spool wheel standing in the sunny corner beside the stable. She wondered if a quick eye could have noticed it from a train. That day and that week she went reluctantly to Red Cross work. She stitched and packed silently, while Vida read the war bulletins. And she said nothing at all when Kennicott commented, from what Champ says, 
I guess Bjornstam was a bad egg after all. In spite of B, don't know but what the Citizens Committee ought to have forced him to be patriotic, let on like they could send him to jail if he didn't volunteer and come through for bonds in the YMCA. They've worked that stunt fine with all these German farmers. 2. She found no inspiration, but she did find a dependable kindness in Mrs. Westlake, and at last she yielded to the old woman's receptivity and had relief in sobbing the story of B. Guy Pollock she often met on the street, but he was merely a pleasant voice which said things about Charles Lamb and sunsets. Her most positive experience was the revelation of Mrs. Flickerbaugh, the tall, thin, twitchy wife of the attorney. Carol encountered her at the drug store. Walking? snapped Mrs. Flickerbaugh. Why, yes. Humph! Guess you're the only female in this town that retains the use of her legs. Come home and have a cup of tea with me. Because she had nothing else to do, Carol went. But she was uncomfortable in the presence of the amused stares which Mrs. Flickerbaugh's raiment drew. Today, in reeking early August, she wore a man's cap, a skinny fur like a dead cat, a necklace of imitation pearls, a scabrous satin blouse, and a thick cloth skirt hiked up in the front. "'Come in. Sit down. Stick the baby in that rocker. Hope you don't mind the house looking like a rat's nest. You don't like this town, neither do I,' said Mrs. Flickerbaugh. "'Why, of course you don't.' "'Well, then, I don't. But I'm sure that some day I'll find some solution. Probably I'm a hexagonal peg. Solution? Find the hexagonal hole.' Carol was very brisk. "'How do you know you will ever find it?' "'There's Mrs. Westlake. She's naturally a big city woman. She ought to have a lovely old house in Philadelphia or Boston, but she escapes by being absorbed in reading. "'You be satisfied to never do anything but read?' "'No, but heavens, one can't go on hating a town always. Why not? I can. I've hated it for thirty-two years. I'll die here, and I'll hate it till I die. I ought to have been a businesswoman. I had a good deal of talent for tending to figures. All gone now. Some folks think I'm crazy. Guess I am. Sid and grouch. Go to church and sing hymns. Folks think I'm religious. Tut! Trying to forget washing and ironing and mending socks. Want an office of my own and sell things. Julius never heard of it. Too late. Carol sat on the gritty couch and sank into fear. Could this drabness of life keep up forever then? Would she some day so despise herself and her neighbors that she too would walk Main Street an old skinny eccentric woman in a mangy cat's fur? As she crept home she felt that the trap had finally closed. She went into the house, a frail small woman, still winsome but hopeless of eye as she staggered with the weight of the drowsy boy in her arms. She sat alone on the porch that evening. It seemed that Kennicott had to make a professional call on Mrs. Dave Dyer. Under the stilly boughs and the black gauze of dusk the street was meshed in silence. There was but the hum of motor-tires crunching the road, the creak of a rocker on the Howland's porch, the slap of a hand attacking a mosquito, a heat-weary conversation starting and dying, the precise rhythm of crickets, the thud of moths against the screen, sounds that were a distilled silence. It was a street beyond the end of the world beyond the boundaries of hope. 
though she should sit here forever, no brave procession, no one who was interesting, would be coming by. It was tediousness made tangible, a street builded of lassitude and of futility. Myrtle Cass appeared with Cy Bogart. She giggled and bounced when Cy tickled her ear in village love. They strolled with a half-dancing gait of lovers, kicking their feet out sideways or shuffling a dragging jig, and the concrete walk sounded to the broken two-four rhythm. Their voices had a dusky turbulence. Suddenly, to the woman rocking on the porch of the doctor's house, the night came alive, and she felt that everywhere in the darkness panted an ardent quest which she was missing as she sank back to wait for... There must be something. End of chapter 27《Chapter 28 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28 1. It was at a supper of the Jolly Seventeen in August that Carol heard of Elizabeth from Mrs. Dave Dyer. Carol was fond of Maud Dyer because she had been particularly agreeable lately, had obviously repented of the nervous distastes which she had once shown. Maud patted her hand when they met and asked about Hugh. Kennicott said that he was kind of sorry for the girl some ways. She's too darn emotional, but still, Dave is sort of mean to her. He was polite to poor Maud when they all went down to the cottages for a swim. Carol was proud of that sympathy in him, and now she took pains to sit with their new friend. Mrs. Dyer was bubbling. Oh. Have you folks heard about this young fellow that's just come to town that the boys call Elizabeth? He's working in Nat Hicks's tailor shop. I bet he doesn't make eighteen a week, but my, isn't he the perfect lady, though? He talks so refined, and oh, the lugs he puts on, belted coat and peak collar with a gold pin, and socks to match his necktie, and honest, you won't believe this, but I got it straight. This fellow... You know he's staying at Mrs. Gurry's punk old boarding-house, and they say he asked Mrs. Gurry if he ought to put on a dress-suit for supper. Imagine! Can you beat that? And him nothing but a Swede tailor. Eric Valborg his name is. But he used to be in a tailor-shop in Minneapolis. They do say he's a smart needle-pusher at that, and he tries to let on that he's a regular city fellow. They say he tries to make people think he's a poet, carries books around and pretends to read them. Myrtle Cass says she met him at a dance, and he was mooning around all over the place, and he asked her did she like flowers and poetry and music and everything. He spieled like he was a regular United States senator. And Myrtle, she's a devil, that girl, ha-ha, <laughs> she kidded him along and got him going. And honest, what do you think he said? He said he didn't find any intellectual companionship in this town. Can you beat it? Imagine! and him a Swede tailor. My! And they say he's the most awful mollycoddle. Looks just like a girl. The boys call him Elizabeth, and they stop him and ask about the books he lets on to have read, and he goes and tells them, and they take it all in and jolly him terribly, and he never gets on to the fact they're kidding him. Oh, I think it's just too funny!" The Jolly Seventeen laughed, and Carol laughed with them. Mrs. Jack Elder added that this Eric Valborg had confided to Mrs. Gurry that he would love to design clothes for women. 
Imagine! Mrs. Harvey Dillon had had a glimpse of him, but honestly, she thought he was awfully handsome. This was instantly controverted by Mrs. B. J. Gogerling, wife of the banker. Mrs. Gogerling had had, she reported, a good look at this Valborg fellow. She and B. J. had been motoring and passed Elizabeth out by Magruder's Bridge. He was wearing the awfulest clothes, with the waist pinched in like a girl's. He was sitting on a rock doing nothing, but when he heard the Gogerling car coming he snatched a book out of his pocket, and as they went by he pretended to be reading it to show off. And he wasn't really good-looking, just kind of soft, as B. J. had pointed out. When the husbands came they joined in the exposé. "'My name is Elizabeth. I'm the celebrated musical tailor. The skirts fall for me by the thou. Do I get some more veal loaf?' merrily shrieked Dave Dyer. He had some admirable stories about the tricks the town youngsters had played on Valborg. They had dropped a decaying perch into his pocket. They had pinned on his back a sign, "'I'm the prize boob. Kick me!' Glad of any laughter, Carol joined the frolic, and surprised them by crying, "'Dave, I do think you're the dearest thing since you got your hair cut!' That was an excellent sally. Everybody applauded. Kennicott looked proud. She decided that sometime she really must go out of her way to pass Hicks's shop and see this freak. 2. She was at Sunday morning service at the Baptist Church, in a solemn row with her husband, Hugh, Uncle Whittier, Aunt Bessie. Despite Aunt Bessie's nagging, the Kennicotts rarely attended church. The doctor asserted, Sure, religion is a fine influence. Got to have it to keep the lower classes in order. Fact, it's the only thing that appeals to a lot of those fellows and makes them respect the rights of property. And I guess this theology is okay. Lots of wise old coots figured it all out, and they knew more about it than we do." He believed in the Christian religion and never thought about it. He believed in the church and seldom went near it. He was shocked by Carol's lack of faith and wasn't quite sure what was the nature of the faith that she lacked. Carol herself was an uneasy and dodging agnostic. When she ventured to Sunday school and heard the teachers droning that the genealogy of Shemsherai was a valuable ethical problem for children to think about, when she experimented with Wednesday prayer meeting and listened to storekeeping elders giving their unvarying weekly testimony in primitive erotic symbols and such gory Chaldean phrases as, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and a vengeful God, when Mrs. Bogart boasted that through his boyhood she had made Sy confess nightly upon the basis of the Ten Commandments, then Carol was dismayed to find the Christian religion, in America, in the twentieth century, as abnormal as Zoroastrianism, without the splendor. But when she went to church suppers and felt the friendliness, saw the gaiety with which the sisters served cold ham and scalloped potatoes, when Mrs. Champ Perry cried to her on an afternoon call, my dear, if you just knew how happy it makes you to come into abiding grace!" Then Carol found the humanness behind the sanguinary and alien theology. Always she perceived that the churches—Methodist, Baptist, Congregational, Catholic, all of them—which had seemed so unimportant to the judge's home in her childhood, so isolated from the city struggle in St. Paul, were still, in Gopher Prairie, the strongest of the forces compelling respectability. This August Sunday she had been tempted by the announcement that the Reverend Edmund Zitterell would preach on the topic, 
America, face your problems. With the Great War, workmen in every nation showing a desire to control industries, Russia hinting a leftward revolution against Kerensky, woman's suffrage coming, there seemed to be plenty of problems for the Reverend Mr. Zitterell to call on America to face. Carol gathered her family and trotted off behind Uncle Whittier. The congregation faced the heat with informality. Men with highly plastered hair, so painfully shaved that their faces looked sore, removed their coats, sighed, and unbuttoned two buttons of their uncreased Sunday vests. Large-bosomed, white-bloused, hot-necked, spectacled matrons, the mothers in Israel, pioneers and friends of Mrs. Champ Perry, waved their palm-leaf fans in a steady rhythm. Abashed boys slunk into the rear pews and giggled, while milky little girls, up front with their mothers, self-consciously kept from turning around. The church was half-barn and half-gopher prairie parlor. The streaky brown wallpaper was broken in its dismal sweep only by framed texts, Come unto me, and The Lord is my shepherd, by a list of hymns, and by a crimson and green diagram, staggeringly drawn upon hemp-colored paper, indicating the alarming ease with which a young man may descend from palaces of pleasure and the house of pride to eternal damnation. But the varnished oak pews and the new red carpet and the three large chairs on the platform behind the bare reading-stand were all of a rocking-chair comfort. Carol was civic and neighborly and commendable today. She beamed and bowed. She trolled out with the others the hymn, How pleasant tis on Sabbath morn to gather in the church, and there I'll have no carnal thoughts, nor sin shall me besmirch. With a rustle of starched linen skirts and stiff shirt-fronts, the congregation sat down and gave heed to the Reverend Mr. Zitterell. The priest was a thin, swart, intense young man with a bang. He wore a black sack suit and a lilac tie. He smote the enormous Bible on the reading-stand, vociferated, Come, let us reason together, delivered a prayer informing Almighty God of the news of the past week, and began to reason. It proved that the only problems which America had to face were Mormonism and Prohibition. Don't let any of these self-conceited fellows that are always trying to stir up trouble deceive you with the belief that there's anything to all these smart aleck movements to let the unions and the Farmers' Nonpartisan League kill all our initiative and enterprise by fixing wages and prices. There isn't any movement that amounts to a whoop without it's got a moral background. And let me tell you that while folks are fussing about what they call economics and socialism and science, and a lot of things that are nothing in the world but a disguise for atheism, the old Satan is busy spreading his secret net and tentacles out there in Utah, under his guise of Joe Smith or Brigham Young or whoever their leaders happen to be today, it doesn't make any difference, and they're making game of the old Bible that has led this American people through its manifold trials and tribulations to its firm position as the fulfillment of the prophecies and the recognized leader of all nations. Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of my feet," said the Lord of Hosts, Acts 2, the thirty-fourth verse. And let me tell you right now, you got to get up a good deal earlier in the morning than you get up even when you're going fishing, if you want to be smarter than the Lord, who has shown us the straight and narrow way, and he that passeth therefrom is in eternal peril. And 
to return to this vital and terrible subject of Mormonism. And, as I say, it is terrible to realize how little attention is given to this evil right here in our midst and on our very doorstep, as it were. It's a shame and a disgrace that the Congress of these United States spends all its time talking about inconsequential financial matters that ought to be left to the Treasury Department, as I understand it, instead of arising in their might and passing a law that anyone admitting he is a Mormon shall simply be deported, and, as it were, kicked out of this free country in which we haven't got any room for polygamy and the tyrannies of Satan. And, to digress for a moment, especially as there are more of them in this state than there are Mormons, though you can never tell what will happen with this vain generation of young girls, that think more about wearing silk stockings than about minding their mothers and learning to bake a good loaf of bread, and many of them listening to these sneaking Mormon missionaries, and I actually heard one of them talking right out on a street corner in Duluth a few years ago, and the officers of the law not protesting. But still, as they are a smaller but more immediate problem, let me stop for just a moment to pay my respects to these Seventh-day Adventists. Not that they are immoral, I don't mean, but when a body of men go on insisting that Saturday is the Sabbath, after Christ himself has clearly indicated the new dispensation, then, I think, the legislature ought to step in." At this point Carol awoke. She got through three more minutes by studying the face of a girl in the pew across, a sensitive, unhappy girl, whose longing poured out with intimidating self-revelation as she worshipped Mr. Zitterell. Carol wondered who the girl was. She had seen her at church suppers. She considered how many of the three thousand people in the town she did not know. To how many of them the Thanatopsis and the Jolly Seventeen were icy social peaks. How many of them might be toiling through boredom thicker than her own, with greater courage. She examined her nails. She read two hymns. She got some satisfaction out of rubbing an itching knuckle. She pillowed on her shoulder the head of a baby who, after killing time in the same manner as his mother, was so fortunate as to fall asleep. She read the introduction, title-page, and acknowledgment of copyrights in the hymnal. She tried to evolve a philosophy which would explain why Kennicott could never tie his scarf so that it would reach the top of the gap in his turned-down collar. There were no other diversions to be found in the pew. She glanced back at the congregation. She thought that it would be amiable to bow to Mrs. Champ Perry. Her slow-turning head stopped, galvanized. Across the aisle, two rows back, was a strange young man who shone among the cud-chewing citizens like a visitant from the sun-amber curls, low forehead, fine nose, chin smooth but not raw from Sabbath shaving. Her lips startled her. The lips of men in Gopher Prairie were flat in the face, straight and grudging. The stranger's mouth was arched, the upper lip short. He wore a brown jersey coat, a deft blue bow, a white silk shirt, white flannel trousers. He suggested the ocean beach, a tennis court, anything but the sun-blistered utility of Main Street. A visitor from Minneapolis, here for business? No. He wasn't a businessman. He was a poet. Keats was in his face, and Shelley, and Arthur Upson, whom she had once seen in Minneapolis. He was at once too sensitive and too sophisticated to touch business as she knew it in Gopher Prairie. With restrained amusement he was analyzing the noisy Mr. Zitterell, 
Carol was ashamed to have this spy from the great world hear the pastor's maundering. She felt responsible for the town. She resented his gaping at their private rights. She flushed, turned away. But she continued to feel his presence. How could she meet him? She must. For an hour of talk. He was all that she was hungry for. She could not let him get away without a word, and she would have to. She pictured and ridiculed herself as walking up to him and remarking, "'I am sick with the village virus. Will you please tell me what people are saying and playing in New York?' She pictured and groaned over the expression of Kennicott if she should say, "'Why wouldn't it be reasonable for you, my soul, to ask that complete stranger in the brown jersey coat to come to supper tonight?' She brooded, not looking back. She warned herself that she was probably exaggerating, that no young man could have all these exalted qualities. Wasn't he too obviously smart, too glossy new? Like a movie actor. Probably he was a traveling salesman, who sang tenor and fancied himself in imitations of Newport clothes, and spoke of the swellest business proposition that ever came down the pike. In a panic she peered at him. No, this was no hustling salesman, this boy with the curving Grecian lips and the serious eyes. She rose after the service, carefully taking Kennicott's arm and smiling at him in a mute assertion that she was devoted to him no matter what happened. She followed the mystery soft brown jersey shoulders out of the church. Fatty Hicks, the shrill and puffy son of Nat, flapped his hand at the beautiful stranger and jeered, How's the kid? All dolled up like a plush horse today, ain't we?" Carol was exceedingly sick. Her herald from the outside was Eric Valborg, Elizabeth. Apprentice tailor. Gasoline and hot goose. Mending dirty jackets. Respectfully holding a tape measure about a paunch. And yet, she insisted, the boy was also himself. 3. They had Sunday dinner with the Smales, in a dining-room which centered about a fruit-and-flower piece and a crayon enlargement of Uncle Whittier. Carol did not heed Aunt Bessie's fussing in regard to Mrs. Robert B. Schmicky's bead necklace and Whittier's error in putting on the striped pants day like this. She did not taste the shreds of roast pork. She said vacuously, "'Uh, Will, I wonder if that young man in the white flannel trousers at church this morning was this Valborg person that they're all talking about? Yup, that's him. Wasn't that the darnest get-up he had on? Kennicott scratched at a white smear on his hard gray sleeve. It wasn't so bad. I wonder where he comes from. He seems to have lived in cities a good deal. Is he from the East? The East? Him? Why, he comes from a farm right up north here, just this side of Jefferson. I know his father slightly. Adolf Valborg typical cranky old Swede farmer. Oh, really? Blandly. Believe he has lived in Minneapolis for quite some time, though. Learned his trade there. And I will say he's bright, some ways. Reads a lot. Pollock says he takes more books out of the library than anybody else in town. Huh! He's kind of like you in that. The Smales and Kennicott laughed very much at this sly jest. Uncle Whittier seized the conversation. That fellow that's working for Hicks? Milksop, that's what he is. Makes me tired to see a young fellow that ought to be in the war, or anyway, out in the fields earning his living honest, like I'd done when I was young, 
doing a woman's work and then come out and dress up like a show actor? Why, when I was his age—" Carol reflected that the carving knife would make an excellent dagger with which to kill Uncle Whittier. It would slide in easily. The headlines would be terrible. Kennicott said judiciously, Oh, I don't want to be unjust to him. I believe he took his physical examination for military service, got varicose veins. Not bad, but enough to disqualify him. Though, I will say, he doesn't look like a fellow that would be so awful darn crazy to poke his bayonet into a Hun's guts. Will, please! Well, he don't. Looks soft to me. And they say he told Del Snafflin, when he was getting a haircut on Saturday, that he wished he could play the piano. Isn't it wonderful how much we all know about one another in a town like this? said Carol innocently. Kennicott was suspicious, but Aunt Bessie, serving the floating island pudding, agreed. Yes, it is wonderful. Folks can get away with all sorts of meannesses and sins in these terrible cities, but they can't here. I was noticing this tailor fellow this morning, and when Mrs. Riggs offered to share her hymn-book with him he shook his head, and all the while he was singing he just stood there like a bump on a log and never opened his mouth. Everybody says he's got an idea that he's got so much better manners and all than what the rest of us have, but if that's what he calls good manners I want to know." Carol again studied the carving-knife. Blood on the whiteness of a tablecloth might be gorgeous. Then, fool, neurotic impossibilist, telling yourself orchard fairy tales, at thirty. Dear Lord, am I really thirty? That boy can't be more than twenty-five. 4. She went calling. Boarding with the widow Bogart was Fern Mullins, a girl of twenty-two, who was to be teacher of English, French, and gymnastics in the high school this coming session. Fern Mullins had come to town early, for the six weeks' normal course for country teachers. Carol had noticed her on the street, had heard almost as much about her as about Eric Valborg. She was tall, weedy, pretty, and incurably rakish. Whether she wore a low midi collar or dressed reticently for school in a black suit with a high-necked blouse, she was airy, flippant. She looks like an absolute toddy," said all the Mrs. Sam Clarks disapprovingly, and all the Juanita Haydocks enviously. That Sunday evening, sitting in baggy canvas lawn-chairs beside the house, the Kennicotts saw Fern laughing with Cy Bogart, who, though still a junior in high school, was now a lump of a man, only two or three years younger than Fern. Cy had to go downtown for weighty matters connected with the pool-parlor. Fern drooped on the Bogart porch, her chin in her hands. "'She looks lonely,' said Kennicott. "'She does, poor soul. I believe I'll go over and speak to her. I was introduced to her at Dave's, but I haven't called.' Carol was slipping across the lawn, a white figure in the dimness, faintly brushing the dewy grass. She was thinking of Eric and of the fact that her feet were wet, and she was casual in her greeting. "Hello." The doctor and I wondered if you were lonely. Resentfully. I am. Carol concentrated on her. My dear, you sound so. I know how it is. I used to be tired when I was on the job. I was a librarian. What was your college? I was Blodgett. More interestedly. I went to the U. 
Fern meant the University of Minnesota. You must have had a splendid time. Blodgett was a bit dull. Where were you a librarian? Challengingly. St. Paul, the main library. Honest? Oh, dear, I wish I was back in the cities. This is my first year of teaching, and I'm scared stiff. I did have the best time in college. Dramatics and basketball and fussing and dancing. I'm simply crazy about dancing. And here, except when I have the kids in gymnasium class, or when I'm chaperoning the basketball team on a trip out of town, I won't dare to move above a whisper. I guess they don't care much if you put any pep into teaching or not, as long as you look like a good influence out of school hours, and that means never doing anything you want to. This normal course is bad enough, but the regular school will be fierce. If it wasn't too late to get a job in the cities, I swear I resign here. I bet I won't dare go to a single dance all winter. If I cut loose and dance the way I like to, they think I was a perfect hellion. Poor harmless me. Oh, I oughtn't to be talking like this. Fern, you never could be cagey. Don't be frightened, my dear. Doesn't that sound atrociously old and kind? I'm talking to you the way Mrs. Westlake talks to me. That's having a husband and a kitchen range, I suppose. But I feel young, and I want to dance like a... like a hellion, too. So I sympathize." Fern made a sound of gratitude. Carol inquired, "'What experience did you have with college dramatics? I tried to start a kind of little theater here. It was dreadful. I must tell you about it.' Two hours later, when Kennicott came over to greet Fern and to yawn, "'Look here, Carrie, don't you suppose you better be thinking about turning in? I've got a hard day tomorrow.' The two were talking so intimately that they constantly interrupted each other. As she went respectably home, convoyed by a husband and decorously holding up her skirts, Carol rejoiced, "'Everything has changed. I have two friends, Fern and—but who's the other? That's queer. I thought there was a—oh, how absurd!' Five. She often passed Eric Valborg on the street. The brown jersey coat became unremarkable. When she was driving with Kennicott in early evening, she saw him on the lake shore, reading a thin book which might easily have been poetry. She noted that he was the only person in the motorized town who still took long walks. She told herself that she was the daughter of a judge, the wife of a doctor, and that she did not care to know a capering tailor. She told herself that she was not responsive to men, not even to Percy Bresnahan. She told herself that a woman of thirty who heeded a boy of twenty-five was ridiculous. And on Friday, when she had convinced herself that the errand was necessary, she went to Nat Hicks's shop, bearing the not very romantic burden of a pair of her husband's trousers. Hicks was in the back room. She faced the Greek god, who, in a somewhat ungodlike way, was stitching a coat on a scaly sewing-machine, in a room of smutted plaster walls. She saw that his hands were not in keeping with a Hellenic face. They were thick, roughened with needle and hot iron and plough-handle. Even in the shop he persisted in his finery. He wore a silk shirt, a topaz scarf, thin tan shoes. This she absorbed while she was saying curtly, can I get these pressed, please?" Not rising from the sewing-machine, he stuck out his hand, mumbled, "'When do you want them?' 
Oh, Monday. The adventure was over. She was marching out. What name? he called after her. He had risen, and despite the farcicality of Dr. Will Kennicott's bulgy trousers draped over his arm, he had the grace of a cat. Kennicott. Kennicott. Oh, oh, say, you're Mrs. Dr. Kennicott, then, aren't you? Yes. She stood at the door. Now that she had carried out her preposterous impulse to see what he was like, she was cold, she was as ready to detect familiarities as the virtuous Miss Ella Stowbody. I've heard about you. Myrtle Cass was saying you got up a dramatic club and gave a dandy play. I've always wished I had a chance to belong to a little theatre and give some European plays, or whimsical like Barry, or a pagant. He pronounced it pagant. He rhymed pag with rag. Carol nodded in the manner of a lady being kind to a tradesman, and one of herself sneered, Our Eric is indeed a lost John Keats. He was appealing. Do you suppose it would be possible to get up another dramatic club this coming fall? Well, it might be worth thinking of. She came out of her several conflicting poses, and said sincerely, There's a new teacher, Miss Mullins, who might have some talent. That would make three of us for a nucleus. If we could scrape up half a dozen, we might give a real play with a small cast. Have you had any experience? Just a bum club that some of us got up in Minneapolis when I was working there. We had one good man, an interior decorator. Maybe he was kind of cis and effeminate, but he really was an artist, and we gave one dandy play. But I... Of course, I've always had to work hard, and study by myself, and I'm probably sloppy, and I'd love it if I had training in rehearsing. I mean, the crankier the director was, the better I'd like it. If you didn't want to use me as an actor, I'd love to design the costumes. I'm crazy about fabrics, textures and colors and designs. She knew that he was trying to keep her from going, trying to indicate that he was something more than a person to whom one brought trousers for pressing. He besought, Some day I hope I can get away from this fool repairing, when I have the money saved up. I want to go east and work for some big dressmaker, and study art drawing, and become a high-class designer. Or do you think that's a kind of fiddling ambition for a fellow? I was brought up on a farm and then monkeying round with silks. I don't know. What do you think? Myrtle Cass says you're awfully educated. I am, awfully. Tell me, have the boys made fun of your ambition? She was seventy years old and sexless and more advisory than Vida Sherwin. Well, they have at that. They've jollied me a good deal, here in Minneapolis both. They say dressmaking is ladies' work. But I was willing to get drafted for the war. I tried to get in. But they rejected me. But I did try. I thought some of working up in a gent's furnishing store, and I'd a chance to travel on the road for a clothing house. But somehow—I hate this tailoring, but I can't seem to get enthusiastic about salesmanship. I keep thinking about a room in a gray oatmeal paper, with prints and very narrow gold frames. Or would it be better in white enamel paneling? But anyway, it looks out on Fifth Avenue, and I'm designing a sumptuous—he made it sumptuous—robe of linden green chiffon over cloth of gold. You know, Tilul. It's elegant. What do you think? Why not? What do you care for the opinion of city rowdies, or a lot of farm boys? 
But you mustn't, you really mustn't, let casual strangers like me have a chance to judge you. Well, you aren't a stranger one way. Myrtle Cass, Miss Cass should say, she's spoken about you so often. I wanted to call on you, and the doctor, but I didn't quite have the nerve. One evening I walked past your house, but you and your husband were talking on the porch, and you looked so chummy and happy I didn't dare butt in. Maternally. I think it's extremely nice of you to want to be trained in, in enunciation by a stage director. Perhaps I could help you. I'm a thoroughly sound and uninspired schoolman by instinct, quite hopelessly mature. Oh, you aren't either. She was not very successful at accepting his fervor with the air of amused woman of the world, but she sounded reasonably impersonal. Thank you. Shall we see if we really can get up a new dramatic club? I'll tell you. Come to the house this evening about eight. I'll ask Miss Mullins to come over and we'll talk about it. 6. He has absolutely no sense of humor. Less than will. But hasn't he? What is a sense of humor? Isn't it the thing he lacks the backslapping jocosity that passes for humor here? Anyway, poor lamb, coaxing me to stay and play with him. Poor lonely lamb. If he could be free from Nat Hicks's, from people who say dandy and bum, would he develop? I wonder if Whitman didn't use Brooklyn backstreet slang as a boy. No, not Whitman. He's Keats, sensitive to silken things. Innumerable of stains and splendid dyes, as are the tiger moth's deep damasked wings. Keats, here, a bewildered spirit fallen on Main Street. And Main Street laughs till it aches, giggles till the spirit dows his own self and tries to give up the use of wings for the correct uses of a gent's furnishing store. Gopher Prairie, with its celebrated eleven miles of cement walk. I wonder how much of the cement is made out of the tombstones of John Keats's. 7. Kennicott was cordial to Fern Mullins, teased her, told her he was a great hand for running off with pretty schoolteachers, and promised that if the school board should object to her dancing, he would bat em one over the head and tell em how lucky they were to get a girl with some go to her for once. But to Eric Valborg he was not cordial. He shook hands loosely, and said, Harya. Nat Hicks was socially acceptable. He had been here for years and owned his shop. But this person was merely Nat's workman, and the town's principle of perfect democracy was not meant to be applied indiscriminately. The conference on a dramatic club theoretically included Kennicott, but he sat back, patting yawns, conscious of Fern's ankles, smiling amiably on the children at their sport. Fern wanted to tell her grievances. Carol was sulky every time she thought of the girl from Kankakee. It was Eric who made suggestions. He had read with astounding breath and astounding lack of judgment. His voice was sensitive to liquids, but he overused the word glorious. He mispronounced a tenth of the words he had from books, but he knew it. He was insistent, but he was shy. When he demanded, I'd like to stage suppressed desires by Cook and Miss Glaspell. Carol ceased to be patronizing. He was not the yearner, he was the artist, sure of his vision. I'd make it simple, use a big window at the back, with a cyclorama of a blue that would simply hit you in the eye, and just one tree branch, 
to suggest a park below. Put the breakfast table on a dais. Let the colors be kind of arty and tea-roomy. Orange chairs and orange and blue table, and blue Japanese breakfast set, and some place, one big flat smear of black, bang! Oh, another play I wish we could do is Tennyson Jesse's The Black Mask. I've never seen it, but glorious ending, where this woman looks at the man with his face all blown away, and she just gives one horrible scream. Good God! Is that your idea of a glorious ending? bade Kennicott. That sounds fierce. I do love artistic things, but not the horrible ones, moaned Fern Mullins. Eric was bewildered, glanced at Carol. She nodded loyally. At the end of the conference they had decided nothing. End of chapter 28 What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.